Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lord Boros was confident of victory, for his scouts had told him that the rivermen were led by boys and women. It was nigh on to dusk when he spied the enemy, yet he ordered an immediate attack, though the road ahead was a solid wall of shields, and the hill to its right bristled with archers. Lord Burroughs led the charge himself, forming his knights into a wedge and thundered down the road at the heart of the foe, where the silver trout of River Run floated on its blue and red banner beside the quartered arms of the dead queen. His foot advanced behind them, beneath King Aegon's golden dragon. The citadel names the clash that followed the Battle of the King's Road. The men who fought it named it the Muddy Mess, by any name, the last battle of the Dance of the Dragons would prove to be a one-sided affair. The longbows on the hill shot the horses out from under Lord Boris's knights as they charged, bringing down so many that less than half his riders ever reached the shield wall. Those that did found their ranks disordered, their wedge broken, their horses slipping and struggling in the soft mud. Though the Stormlanders wreaked great havoc with lance and sword and long axe, the river lords held firm as new men stepped up to fill the place of those who fell. When Lord Baratheon's foot came crashing into the fray, the shield wall swayed and staggered back, and seemed as if it might break, until the wood to the left of the road erupted with shouts and screams, and hundreds more rivermen burst from the trees led by that mad boy Benjacott Blackwood, who would this day earn the name Bloody Ben, by which he would be known for the rest of his long life. This was one of many fitting anecdotes available to us recounting the deeds of one of House Blackwood's many illustrious figures. We'll have plenty to say about Bloody Ben, who breaks the mold we've been given for boy lords, especially boy lords in times of war. In addition, we have Black Alley Blackwood, a badass warrior noted for her archery, something not terribly uncommon amongst the heroes from House Blackwood. It was she who led the longbows in breaking Lord Boros's charge in that quote. She also helped lay the groundwork for Rob Stark's Kingdom of North and Rivers more than a century and a half in advance of his birth. As we saw in part one, the connections between North and Blackwood took root long ago, and this episode will help illuminate the ways in which they still endure. Ned Stark's great-grandmother was Melantha Blackwood, just one example. Meanwhile, Daenerys Targaryen's great-grandmother was Betha Blackwood. That would make her the great-great-grandmother of Rhaegar's children, and she's also the mother of Rael, the grandmother to Robert, Stannis, and Renly. Not to mention, there's a very good chance Betha and Melantha are sisters. Their marriages likely happened fairly near to each other. Betha may have witnessed and died at Summerhall, and Melantha might be the pregnant woman in Bran's Weirwood Vision, the one dripping as she emerges from the pool, praying to the old gods for a son who will grant her revenge. But wait, there's more starting with some famous bastard archers with other talents too, Red Rob Rivers and Brendan Rivers, a.k.a. Bloodraven. He has his own episodes, but still he found his way into this one, at least a little. How could he not? So too his mother, the famous Melissa Blackwood, whom everyone seemed to love, well, except the Brackens. Titus Blackwood too, of course, is in here. It's in A Dance with Dragons, Jamie's chapter, that we see the Blackwood Castle Raven Tree Hall, hear about the famous 
ancient tree and wonder about how he and the rest of the Riverlands will fare in the days and pages to come. But he's also been active since the start of the war, distinguishing himself during Rob's brief time as king, and he was the last one to bend the knee after the Red Wedding. It's clear George R. Martin has placed the Blackwoods carefully. They are an important part of the ancestry for several of the most important houses, and they have strong associations with mystical elements of the story as well. All these characters and the last few hundred years of history pertaining to House Blackwood right here in this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is House Blackwood Part 2. You don't have to listen to Part 1 first. It's highly recommended, but the two episodes are standalone. This episode features topics such as a new Westeros order, Under the Dragon, a shift in the currents, Black Dragon, Black Wood, then three different character sections on Red Rob Rivers, Bloody Ben, and Black Alley. Then we'll have When Black Wood Catches Black Fire. Then Melissa the Great, The Gang Reignites the Rivalry, The Blackwood Queen, Raven's Eggs, The Heirs of Summerhall, Darkwing's Stark Words, That's So Raven Tree, and Back in Blackwood. And then we'll finish with an outro, of course, and some thanks and acknowledgments as usual. Thanks to the many patrons who support the show. It's been a little while since we've put out a scripted episode, but we're back again with another one. Thanks to Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, and to Lanes the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, the Red Dragon with Scales, Horns, and Talons of Midnight Black, and Hunter of House Blackcloud, the Storm Runner, King of the Sky, Rider of Haranicon, the Windworm a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, with eyes the colors of diamonds of fire. A new Westeros order. We ended part one with House Blackwood showing up at Heron Hall at the call of their king, Heron the Black. But when it came time to fight, they sat and watched while Aegon roasted the gigantic castle and many of the people inside. The Blackwoods and others would be concerned about the heart tree there, but Aegon had Balerion leave it alone. The godswood wasn't going to stop him from taking the castle, after all. And though he focused on appeasing worshippers of the Seven, since it was and is the dominant religion, but he may not have wanted to upset worshippers of the old gods in a kingdom he was about to try and rule over either. Why make enemies when you don't need to? And Heron the Black had made many enemies within the Riverlands himself and without before all this. The Riverlords may not have loved Aegon the Conqueror, but it's a safe bet the vast majority saw him as an improvement over Heron the Black. But Aegon had no intention of ruling each kingdom directly. He would rule through the Great Houses, thus was born the systems of Lord Paramounts. In most cases, the family that ruled as kings continued on as Lord Paramount, but with Heron and his line gone, that was not an option. Another example of revenge not paying off, the weakening of Houses Blackwood and Bracken during that most recent of flare-ups between them not long before the conquest is cited as a major reason for why House Tully were made overlords of the Riverlands in this new Seven Kingdoms under the Iron Throne. I suspect it's more than that, though. The Conqueror adopted the faith of the Seven, as we said, as his own, in part as a means of gaining acceptance. Appointing a house that worshipped the old gods probably wasn't the best accompanying plan. Furthermore, Aegon would not want a house with such an obvious bias towards another important house sitting right next door. He's trying to create stability, and long-recurring bad blood-related flare-ups is not a great line item to have on the resume. Give the Blackwoods a big edge, 
and they won't be able to resist using it to cut down the Brackens and vice versa. They can't be trusted to keep the peace. So the cycle of revenge built on a foundation of ambition did harm to that very goal in the time of the dragon so many generations later. The concept of karma is misused fairly often, but this, in my opinion, is a pretty strong example if you imagine a house as a unit, all of them responsible for the actions of their kin, which, fair or not, wise or not, is where Westerosi perspective tends to fall. It hardly needs saying that the conquest had a huge impact on Westeros as a whole, both in the short and long term, but for House Blackwood, it was a lot more of the latter and a lot less of the former. As we've seen, not just from the Blackwood perspective, but history has not been so kind to the Riverlands, a region which has seen more bloodshed than most, if not all, thanks, quite simply, to being in the middle. The Iron Throne changed that nearly overnight. Under the Dragon Before the conquest, wars between the realms of Westeros were common. Hardly a year passed without someone fighting someone somewhere. Even in those kingdoms said to be at peace, neighbouring lords oft settled their disputes at sword point. Aegon's ascension put an end to much of that. Petty lords and landed knights were now expected to take their disputes to their liege lords and abide by their judgments. Arguments between the great houses of the realm were adjudicated by the crown. The first law of the land shall be the king's peace, King Aegon decreed, and any lord who goes to war without my leave shall be considered a rebel and an enemy of the Iron Throne. Rumors that King Aegon was staring directly at the lords of houses Blackwood and Bracken while making this declaration were started by me just now, but surely he was aware of their long-running feud, and theirs was the type of infighting he wanted to put an end to. He did not, though he may have curbed it somewhat, and at least it didn't happen in his lifetime that we know of. Evidence that smaller-scale wars became rare can be seen in the decline of the Night's Watch. Heron the Black's own brother was Lord Commander when Aegon came. He did his duty by doing nothing, keeping thousands of swords at their posts on the wall. A common archetype on the wall are the, quote, fought-on-the-losing-side guys. Sir Alistair Thorne and Sir Jeremy Riker, for example, are members of that club. But without wars... There's no losing side. Change came in other institutions as well. Marriage patterns changed along with borders, and so did the authority behind them. Marriages are often strategic, right? But the Game of Thrones was changed by a new player. The Iron Throne changed everything. And wise players know that when the game is modified, so should your strategy. It would seem the Blackwoods did not get a fast start in the new era, but they seemed to play the long game well. Marriages from one kingdom to another became more common. Lords order marriages, but so do kings, and the king of one kingdom has a different outlook than a king of seven kingdoms. Still, no matter the scale, marriage is commonly used as a bridge towards peace, and the Iron Throne set about building a few of these bridges. Queen Visenya is credited with targeting a particular old feud, you know which one. She arranged a double wedding of Bracken and Blackwood, one son and one daughter from each of the two ancient rivals. Now, we're told that Bracken and Blackwood married many times and that many pieces were sealed with weddings, but perhaps this was the first double version. With the establishment of a royal court, a great many families became much more involved in the affairs of court and the capital, and thus each other. Perhaps no other realm family entwined so closely the Targaryens as the Blackwoods did. Along with their noble and royal history, they have the advantage of proximity. For example, a very disproportionate number of hands of the king are from the Riverlands and Crownlands, especially in the first century of Targaryen rule. 
Though vassals to the Tullys, House Blackwood was still prominent, powerful, and possessed of the trait we know Westerosi nobles loved to trumpet, the blood of kings. That had always made them worthy of marriages to many other great houses like House Stark, and now even House Targaryen. This came later because it required some actual Targaryens to marry, and they mostly marry each other, especially early on. But also early on, the Targaryen family was small. At the point of the conquest, Aenys hadn't been born. There were a mere three Targaryens on one branch. Aegon eventually only had two sons and no daughters, despite two wives. But later, there will be multiple branches on that family tree. A dragon-sized branch is the perfect place for a raven to perch. You know it can handle some weight. So the peace had a lot of benefits, even if some of them weren't exactly what was asked for. In the West, they still had the Lannisters at the top, with Casterly Rock, now a vassal of the Iron Throne, ditto the Starks of Winterfell in the North. These transitions might have been fairly smooth, but in the Stormlands, the Durandans were gone. The Gardeners were gone as well from the Reach. The Durandan bloodline was subsumed by the Baratheons, and the Tyrells went from royal stewards of the Gardner line to rulers of the Reach under the Iron Throne and House Targaryen. In general, perhaps, the transitions went easier for the Riverlands most of all, because the Riverlands was unique within the framework of the Targaryen conquest in that it was already conquered when the dragons came. In other words, they traded one foreign ruler for another. Her hair in the black, as we said, was as bad as they come. Magor was even arguably less bad than him, at least as far as the Riverlands is concerned. But even if you don't agree, comparison alone says a lot. The fact that it's close is like, wow. If you're at a king's mercy, better that king actually have some mercy. Still, perhaps they resented the Tullys placed above them. Let us never forget how these ancient houses are when it comes to pride. And House Tully had never been kings. So for a house like the Blackwoods, that's a problem. They're among the candidates to be prideful here as former kings themselves. There is power in king's blood, we're told. And it might be true, but it's definitely true that there's pride in king's blood. The dragon taketh and the dragon giveth away, as they say, though... It won't be long before the Targaryens seat some incompetent and or cruel rulers who give Heron a run for their money on the Iron Throne. Given that, it wasn't long before the Blackwoods were drawn into much larger scale conflicts, often with the Brackens on the other side, and that's when it becomes hard to resist again. Because, well, they're still neighbors after all. When hostilities break out and your neighbors are traitors and you already hate them, this is not an outcome difficult to predict. But peace did reign for quite some time, and within that span... The storylines were dynastic and political instead of martial. A shift in the currents. The lords of the south honoured the old gods as well as the new, she told Lord Alaric. Most every castle that she knew of had a godswood as well as a sept. And there were still certain houses that had never accepted the seven, no more than the northmen had, the Blackwoods and the Riverlands chief amongst them, and mayhaps as many as a dozen more. That was spoken by Queen Alisande circa 58 AC after the time of the Faith Militant had passed. But I surely wonder what it was like for House Blackwood and these other dozen or so houses after the passing of the Conqueror. It was during Alisande's time that she and Jaehaerys settled what her uncle Magor and father Aenys had started with the Faith before them. In that quote, the Queen says the Lords of the South still honor the old gods, but I can't imagine it was smooth sailing during that tumultuous time when the faith was extra sensitive to things they considered blasphemous. Still, the lack of organization and representation by the old gods probably helped. There's no priest for them to harass or worse. No shrine to vandalize and the old and new gods mostly had lived alongside each other for quite a while by this point. 
On the other hand, we're told the Blackwoods despoiled several Bracken Septs during the Dance of the Dragons and may have at other times too, or perhaps they did so in revenge for, well, who knows what else the Brackens have done or what they blame them for. Certainly they've been accused of killing the shrine of the Blackwoods, their great tree. Still, it's a rare example of Blackwoods portrayed in a dim light morally. Keep that in mind, most of the time when we see the Blackwoods portrayed, it's positive. With regards to the king, being an exception in their beliefs may have worked out in an unexpected way. It didn't help them in the time of Aegon, but Magor saw traitors everywhere amongst the faith. He didn't have problems with the old gods, as far as we know. So when hunting for zealous faith militant, he probably didn't spend much time considering that they were hiding on Blackwood lands. At the great battle beneath the god's eye in 43 AC, where Magor slew his nephew Aegon and the dragon Quicksilver he was riding, the names of the houses participating on both sides of this battle are thoroughly detailed. But House Blackwood is conspicuously absent. That's interesting given how close they were to the action. Magor may have been seen as unbeatable, but not a man to get behind either. He imploded over time, and that may have been predictable to some forward thinkers of the era, though it probably didn't require too much forward thinking to make this guess. Many of those who could treated Magor's reign like a particularly long storm they were hoping would soon pass them all by. It took about five years. If worshiping the old gods came in handy by accident with Magor, in the next example, not much farther down the timeline, it did not work out. Fire and Blood gives us the case of the Targaryen princess Daella, who backed out of a marriage to Royce Blackwood, the heir to Raventree Hall, because the thought of saying her marriage vows in front of the giant Weirwood was a deal breaker. To be fair, this poor girl was afraid of cats too, so and so many other things. That was the year 79 AC, and Queen Alsan was said to have been working on the arrangements with Lord Blackwood until the princess changed her mind, adamantly. Gotta say, upsetting the extremely fearful Daella and being ignored by Magor the Cruel, good call on not doing that the other way around, Blackwoods. It would have been the first old gods Targaryen marriage we know of, though. Interesting, right? Daella instead married Lord Aaron. And notably, the Eyrie has a complete lack of weirwood trees. Hmm. <laughs> Old God's worship and northern cultural values came into play again near the end of Jaehaerys' reign at the Great Council of 101 AC. We needn't delve into the complexities of the lineages of the claimants, but the Blackwood stood for Laenor Valarian because he'd be the heir following the standard inheritance laws. Along with the Blackwood stood the other two named northern houses present, Stark and Manderley. We don't know which Lord Blackwood this was, but it might have been the same Royce that we just talked about almost marrying Princess Daella, as he'd likely be around his late 30s by this point, if he was still alive. It would be very likely a close relation of his. If not, his father could still be around even, or his son, his brother, uncle. You know how these things go. Standard inheritance laws had already been bypassed last time the current heir had died, though, and Viserys I ascended to the throne, winning the vote easily. In 105, the king's wife passed and he confirmed his only child, Princess Rhaenyra, as the heir. Of course, this is highly important because he required the lords and ladies of the realm to confirm her as such. Those who did would be held to it. And Northern culture holds to such rather strongly, especially for any of those who had taken their oaths to Rhaenyra in front of a heart tree. The value of Northern oaths said to heart trees is a major recurring theme in John's POV, particularly 
as examples like this remind us. Can this man Moors be trusted? asked Stannis. Has Moors Umber bent the knee? Your grace should have him swear an oath before his heart tree. We don't know if the Lord Blackwood who voted for Lenor was the same who took this oath, but it was only three years apart, so it does seem pretty likely. Six years later, the year 111 saw the black and green factions begin to form. King Viserys had taken a second wife and had sons, but made clear that they did not overtake his daughter's claim. As the future queen, her husband would be king consort, a.k.a. king by marriage. A beautiful princess, set to be queen, and single? Yes, there was some tryhard. To Bracken and Blackwood, however, it was a rare opportunity in addition to the royal opportunity. Not only a chance to fight for the princess, but to fight each other. This came in 112, a year after the factions began to form. The heir to Raventree Hall, Sir Samuel Blackwood was his name, fought a duel with Sir Amos Bracken, the heir to Stonehenge, to win Rainier's favor. Bracken emerged the winner, but it didn't amount to anything other than pride since she didn't marry either of them anyway. Though I suppose, as we've said, pride. That's a big deal between these two houses, and it was a prelude to real fighting later. As is famously known, the matter of her husband was settled at last when the princess was seemingly forced by the king to marry former claimant Lenor Valarian. For Blackwood, Stark, Manderley, and the others, it seemed even more clear. They had sworn to Rhaenyra and previously had supported the claim of the man she was going to marry. Two whom they had supported were now one unit. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite so simple for a few other houses outside the North and Crownlands, with House Blackwood remaining, as they so often are, an exception to much of the rest of the South. The next 17 years saw a lot of buildup for the dance, with two key births for the Blackwoods and one key death. Good Queen Alysanne herself had passed in the year 100. She had been widely beloved given her interactions with Lord Blackwood regarding the almost marriage to Royce. I wouldn't be surprised if she had personally made a strong impression, particularly on the Blackwoods. After all, she did make strong impressions on the regular, and we know she had close contact with them. Perhaps it helped Samwell Blackwood get over his loss to Amos Bracken that his mother and father gave him a sister the following year. The girl was named Alice Ann and came to be known as Black Alley. Samwell had his own son five years after that, whom they named Benjicott. He came to be known as Bloody Ben, the same one from the opening quote. And these two key births, Alley and Ben, give us some really excellent stories. The one death that I mentioned came during one of those excellent stories. Let's go there. Black Dragon, Black Wood. The Blackwoods and a great many other houses, nearly all of them really, got drawn into the Dance of the Dragons and played a significant role both in the battles as well as the politics, especially the aftermath. To no one's surprise, the Blackwoods chose their namesake in the Blacks. Hmm. Historians and podcasters both are thankful for avoiding the confusion that would have come if Blackwood fought for Green. The Northerners are oft portrayed with some negative bias by the maesterly sources, but not when it comes to matters of courage or loyalty. As we've seen so far, the Blackwoods tend to be associated with the same attitudes of their fellow old gods worshippers. In 129 AC, Daemon Targaryen used Harrenhal as a base of operations to try and bring the Riverlands under control for his faction. The Blackwoods wasted no time getting involved, just as the Brackens did on the other side. Of course. Blackwood struck first. And when Sir Amos prepared to strike back, Lord Samwell ambushed them, and the ensuing engagement became known as the Battle of the Burning Mill. 
Lord Samuel Blackwood, perhaps seeking revenge for that lost duel, faced Sir Amos Bracken on the battlefield. Or perhaps it was Sir Amos who sought out the Lord of Raventree Hall, knowing he had beaten him already and could do it again. Whatever the circumstances, Sir Amos was again the winner, and this time it was a fight to the death. Lord Samuel Blackwood perished in the mud and blood and darkness under the light of the burning mill, which had been set aflame during the battle at some point. Sir Amos had little time to celebrate, it seems, nor capitalize on the advantage. It was lost almost as soon as it was gained. Lord Samwell's sister Black Alley avenged his death, or so we're told, firing a werewood arrow through the eye slit in Sir Amos's helm. And just like that, he too was among the casualties. Yet another Bracken and Blackwood to add to the accounts. During the battle, it seems Prince Damon attacked Stonehenge directly while it was light on soldiers, and with his dragon Caraxes, accepted their surrender. The Brackens turned to the Black side, and the rest of the Riverlands took note. The entire region was now for Rhaenyra. So there would be no more Bracken versus Blackwood fighting for now. So it was a great victory. Despite the many conflicts between Blackwood and Bracken, it's unlikely there have been many times that the other actually captured the enemy castle. Still, celebration would perhaps be inappropriate since Lord Samwell was dead, and recall his son was born a mere 11 years back. So, one of the largest wars in Westerosi history was just beginning, and the new Lord Blackwood was but a child. This child bearing the somewhat unthreatening name Benjakot, who would prove himself in time, and not a long time, soon. But other members of his family were already in the field. Red Rob Rivers. The Bowman of Raventree, he was called. Across this episode and part one, you'll notice many stories of archery prowess associated with the Blackwoods, such as Black Alley's kill shot of Sir Ramus Bracken. But the best archer of them all, based on reputation and the sources, might very well be this Red Rob Rivers. See, he wasn't just considered the best of the Blackwoods in his time. He was considered the best in Westeros. That's right, the Besteros. I'm guessing he had red hair, but maybe he just liked to wear red or something. Anyway, he fought for the Blacks like his family, but it seems as though he was operating independently from Raventree Hall somewhat or entirely. There's no evidence he was at the Battle of Burning Mill, for example. Perhaps a bit like Brendan Rivers' Raven's Teeth, who came along several generations later, he is said to have brought 300 archers with him to the battle by the lakeshore during the dance, his first appearance in the annals of history. Blood Raven brought 300 raven's teeth to the red grass field. Archers are certainly not uncommon, generally speaking, but I suspect there's an emphasis on archery at Raven Tree Hall, if not in the Riverlands in general. The history of the Riverlands is in part a history of bloodshed, and it's no stretch of the imagination to think they might prioritize defensive weapons given all the invasions they've faced over the eons. There's always a greater emphasis on archery when the theater of war is watery. After all, swords and spears aren't much good until ships crash together and boarding occurs. The Summer Islanders combine expert seamanship and expert archery. The ship chasing Brienne and Jamie and Sir Cleos from Riverrun was packed with archers. Hmm? One last example that strikes me is the Tully funeral custom, which involves lighting the boat with a flaming arrow. That's a tradition that implies some skill, some confidence with the bow. Well, in Admure's case, maybe a lot more of the latter. He's not the best example of skill with the bow. But recall that his uncle, the Blackfish, stepped in and made a spectacular shot of his own to save the funeral. So we've got a lot of archery implied and a long list of archers specifically from Raventree Hall. Red Rob was likely drawing a bow as soon as he was strong enough to do so. I mean, he was probably trying before that. <laughs> 
Some of his 300 may have grown up with him or been trained by him. We don't know how old he was when they marched off to the God's eye. Perhaps it was his first battle, but I would guess he'd been in battle before since it, it takes time for the entire continent to recognize you as the best at something. But even if he was a grizzled veteran, there's no chance he had fought in a battle like this because no one had. It was called the battle by the lakeshore because it took place by the God's eye, but it was also nicknamed the fish feed due to how brutal and bloody it was with so many bodies becoming food for once instead of the ravens for the fish. (laughs) Before the battle began, Lord Lefford realized it didn't look good for him when he found himself in a bad position. Caught between these two foes, Lefford hesitated to move against either, for fear of the other falling on his rear. Instead, he put his back to the lake, dug in, and sent ravens to Prince Amond at Harrenhal, begging his aid. Though a dozen birds took wing, not one ever reached the prince. Red Rob Rivers, said to be the finest archer in all Westeros, took them down on the wing. More rivermen turned up the next day, led by Sir Garibald Grey, Lord John Charlton, and the new Lord of Raventree, the 11-year-old Benjicott Blackwood. As the quote says, no help came, but additional foes did. And eventually they assaulted Lord Lefford's army. The blacks attacked from multiple sides while Red Rob and his archers presumably rained down shafts on the greens and their fixed position. Very many died, but it was a one-sided affair. I would guess Red Rob didn't lose any of his men in this one. And perhaps shooting people was easier for him than shooting ravens. But there's something treasonous about Blackwood's killing ravens. (laughs) And did he have a weirwood bow? I wonder about that. I bet it's a good chance. His next confirmed appearance was also kind of an easy job as far as war goes, which raises the bar by itself. At the outset of the battle called the Butcher's Ball, we get another vague comparison to Bloodraven. At this time, it's a bit of a parallel to the red grass field itself. At that time, from atop a ridge, Brendan Rivers and his men shot down Damon Blackfire, a man who seemingly none could stand before in battle. He was the best warrior of his generation, perhaps. Here, it was Red Rob and two of his men that slew Sir Kristen Cole, who was also arguably the best fighter of this earlier generation. Fittingly, Red Rob was also atop a ridge when he made his kill shot. The Night Fireball. A key commander of Damon Blackfires was also slain by an arrow conspicuously the day before the red grass field. This is also a bit of a parallel to Cole's death, and some might find it even stronger as a connection. Now, Brendan Rivers was well-read, and perhaps he knew of his ancestor Red Rob's deeds. And truly, a son of Raventree Hall, slaying the famous Kingmaker? That's not going to be easily forgotten in general, much less by the house that actually got credit for doing so. Damon's death was followed by hero worship and martyr status, something Bloodraven would have preferred to avoid, but there was little he could do about that. These men, however, did have some control over the situation. Sir Criston drew his longsword from its scabbard. As you will it, we can begin here, the four of us, one of me against three of you. Will that be enough to make a fight of it? But Longleaf the Lion Slayer said, I want three more. And up on the ridge, Red Rob Rivers and two of his archers raised their longbows. Three arrows flew across the field, striking Cole in the belly, neck, and breast. I'll have no songs about how brave you died, Kingmaker. As it so often goes in Westeros and in real life, the loss of a crucial leader can all but decide the battle. In this case, perhaps the Greens 
were doomed no matter what, as they were trapped, weary, outnumbered, and demoralized. In fact, both of these battles saw Red Rob and his men in excellent positions, facing a trapped foe while they had bows to shoot at them from a distance. Hmm. Before the Butcher's Ball, Red Rob may have been involved in guerrilla warfare against Kristen Cole's army, who were harassed and subjected to a variety of creative raids, which involved taking shots at them from concealed positions along the march. Seems like that would be the sort of thing he'd be perfect for. Like the other examples, they got to keep their distance and shoot at targets that had limited or no ability to find cover or strike back. However, it was not so easy the next time we hear of Red Rob in battle. At the first Battle of Tumbleton, the Greens had a huge advantage with a large edge in numbers. The Blacks had the town itself, though, and Red Rob and his men were positioned on the walls to provide cover for their compatriots outside. The armies met outside the walls, but the larger army predictably pushed through, and the Blacks were forced back into the town. As they fled back into Tumbleton, Red Rob and his men covered their retreat from this vantage point of the walls. But from an even higher vantage point came a much more dangerous threat, the Blue Queen Tessarian, ridden by Prince Daron the Daring. This would be a perfect opportunity for an elite archer to make a huge difference, putting a shaft in its eye or perhaps one in the rider. But if Red Rob or any of his men took such a shot, they missed. Later in the episode and in the war, a different archer will succeed with Tessarian. But as you'll see, circumstances make the shot a bit easier for the bowman in that case. Red Rob may not have even tried. He may not have gotten a chance. This is where the chaos of the Battle of Tumbleton makes things a bit unclear. The Blacks had two dragons of their own and expected that they would fight off Tessarian and help against the enemy army. Tessarian was a young dragon after all. The Northmen had exited a postern gate and attacked the much larger green army from the flank and managed to slay their leader, Lord Hightower. Otherwise, not much went well, largely because those two dragon riders who were about to jump in on the side of the Blacks instead betrayed the Blacks. Instead of a two-on-one, dragon-wise, it was a three-on-none. Red Rob may have simply been killed during the switch, and we don't know what his fate was. His, it's lost in the chaos, but I do have thoughts on this. Put yourself in the shoes of Hard Hugh Hammer and Ulf White. These are the two betrayers. And while there were no geniuses, it doesn't take a genius to realize that as a dragon rider, the most dangerous threat to you while you're up there on your dragon, apart from other dragons, is an archer. So if I'm one of those guys and I'm planning on switching sides, the first guy I'm going to kill when I switch sides is Red Rob Rivers, the man most capable of shooting me out of my dragon saddle. Then I kill his buddies, the other 299, since they have bows too. And, you know, I kill them. Then I kill the knights and men-at-arms who can't shoot back. It's just common sense. I don't know that's the plan they took, but it's not unlikely. Even if the Blackwood archers were not targeted here, the odds of their survival remain pretty grim. It was the field of fire writ small, Grand Maester Munkin wrote. Tumbleton went up in flame. Shops, homes, septs, people, all. Men fell burning from gatehouse and battlements, or stumbled shrieking through the streets like so many living torches. 
Outside the walls, Prince Darren swooped down upon Tessarion. Pate of Longleaf was unhorsed and trampled, Sir Garibald Grey pierced by a crossbow bolt, then engulfed by dragonflame. The two betrayers scourged the town with whips of flame from one end to the other. Sir Roger Corn and his men chose that moment to show their true colours, cutting down the defenders on the town gates and throwing them open to the attackers. Lord Owain Borney did the same within the castle, driving a spear through the back of Sir Merrill the Bold. The sack that followed was as savage as any in the history of Westeros. Tumbleton, that prosperous market town, was reduced to ash and embers. Thousands burned, and as many died by drowning as they tried to swim the river. Some would later say they were the fortunate ones, for no mercy was shown the survivors. Lord Footley's men threw down their swords and yielded, only to be bound and beheaded. Rob and his men were on the battlements that burned. And it says defenders on the gates were betrayed by this Sir Roger Cornfellow. They were defenders on the gates, most likely. And the survivors were killed as well. So, yeah, real blood and fire situation there. So he's simply not mentioned again, nor are his men. We are thus of the opinion that Red Rob Rivers, the bowman of Raventree, died during the first battle of Tumbleton. There's one last piece of evidence here. At one point, it's mentioned that Lord Blackwood summoned his best archer, a man named Billy Burley. Red Rob was called the finest archer in all of Westeros. Those statements would seem to contradict each other unless Red Rob was no longer living. It's certainly fitting, though, that a man with so much in common with Bloodraven had an ambiguous end of his own. (laughs) Perhaps instead of dying at Tumbleton, he escaped and lives in a tree somewhere. (laughs) The Lord Blackwood from that anecdote is our next subject, neatly showing up after the first battle of Tumbleton shortly after all this for... The Second Battle of Tumbleton. Bloody Ben. Clad for court, it was said, Lord Benjacott was very much a boy, tall for his age but slight of build, with a sensitive face and a shy, self-effacing manner. Clad in mail and plate, Bloody Ben was an altogether different man, and one who had seen more of the battlefield at thirteen than most men do in their entire lives. His men had helped to drive Kristen Cole from Harrenhal by hunting down his foragers. He had commanded the centre at Second Tumbleton, and during the muddy mess, he had led the flank attack from the woods that had broken Lord Baratheon's stormlanders and won the day. When war broke out, as we saw, his father, Lord Samuel, was quick to fight for Prince Damon, perhaps especially because it meant fighting the Brackens. And Red Rob Rivers, an uncle or a cousin of Bloody Ben, we suppose, was quite notably already on the black side too. And though... Some families took opposite sides, like the Tullys. Having a famous member of your house already out there, even when he's a bastard, it sets the tone for where your loyalties lie. So unlike most lords, someone else had already made the decision as to whether to fight for blacks or greens when Benjakot took over. Unlike the Tullys, this didn't seem to be a problem. Upon the death of his father in the Battle of the Burning Mill... It would not have been unexpected for Ben to stay home, allowing other family members or a sworn man to lead the Blackwood men or just to find some other excuse to stay out of the fighting. They had already participated notably to that point. Red Rob was already in the field. So the Blackwoods could say, hey, we're already doing our part. Nevertheless, Lord Benjakot, despite his age, showed up at the fish feed. By appearances, it seems to have been formative. The Lannister host was shattered and slaughtered, but at such a cost that young Ben Blackwood, the Lord of Raventree, wept when he saw the heaps of the dead. 
The most grievous losses were suffered by the Northmen, for the winter wolves had begged the honour of leading the attack and had charged five times into the ranks of Lannister spears. More than two-thirds of the men who had ridden south with Lord Dustin were dead or wounded. But afterwards, later in the war, he's portrayed as brave and capable and at times eager for battle. In the opening quote of the episode, he charges with a mad war cry. He was lord because his father had fallen in battle, after all. We cannot assume he wept to see those men dead or because there was so much blood. Perhaps the Winter Wolves' display of courage and willingness to die, followed by so many of them actually dying, had a great impact on him. He was moved by their bravery. Had he met many Northerners before? He was obviously steeped in their culture to some degree, being the first son of Raven Tree, born in the shadow of that great tree in all their storied history. Lord Cregan Stark, though a young man himself, will dominate Benjicott and several other young lords later. And again, I think of the fish feed. Those northern warriors are hardcore. These guys don't fight duels over princesses. But a lot of them were killed. And I imagine everyone there took note of the valor of the winter's wolves. Still, Benjicott gained some measure of respect and fame here as well on his own, as it was at this very same battle where he earned his nickname. And it wasn't crying Ben. Other lords would respect that someone of his age led warriors in battle. Bloody Ben, as his men had taken to calling him, was only 13, an age at which most highborn boys are still squires, grooming their master's horses and scouring the rust from their mail. Lordship had fallen to him early, when his father, Lord Samuel Blackwood, had been slain by Sir Amos Bracken at the Battle of the Burning Mill. Despite his youth, the boy lord had refused to delegate authority to older men. At the fish feed, he had famously wept at the sight of so many dead, yet he did not flinch from battle afterward but rather sort it out. There's some dispute, actually. In the opening quote of this episode, it says he earned the nickname in the last battle of the war. But here it says men were already using the name. The sources do not agree, apparently, but it doesn't matter. Bloody Ben is his name. When he got the name is less important. Immediately thereafter, following the fish feed, that is, he went towards Hall and made life difficult for Sir Criston Cole by hunting those of Sir Criston's men who went hunting for food. A lot of the armies and commanders from this battle are seen together repeatedly throughout the war. The Blackwoods are a large part of that. Furthermore, Benjicott and his sister Allie's relationships with other members of the Black faction will continue long after the fighting stops. It is one of the silver linings of war that powerful new friendships can be formed on both the individual and regional level. With that, it's fitting that the Blackwoods fought on the same side as the North, as it was with the Starks and others that they grew closer to. While some of these younger lords were forming bonds of friendship, the queen was shattering some of her own. Convinced by bad counsel that the two betrayers, Ulf the White and Hardhue Hammer, would be joined by the other bastard-born dragon riders simply because they were bastards, she moved to have Adam Valerian arrested. But the sea snake, Lord Coralise Valerian, risked the queen's ire by warning Sir Adam in advance, and he took flight, literally, on his dragon sea smoke. Even though Lord Coralise was imprisoned over this, even though Sir Adam had committed no treasons... It only strengthened his resolve to prove himself as a loyal man. He decided to do this by helping to retake Tumbleton. He flew to a number of castles around the Riverlands, convincing lords and ladies to send what few men they had left for this battle. And he was quite successful. Many joined him, including the Tullys, who to this point had stayed out of the war because the Lord of Riverrun and his son couldn't agree on who to fight for. He may have brought Bloody Ben back into the field as well, did Sir Adam, though Bloody Ben was probably already in the field and is doubtful he needed much encouragement. 
After all, the Blackwoods may have been out for some revenge if they knew what happened to Red Rob and who did it, the betrayers. Clearly, Bloody Ben and the other river lords didn't share the queen's prejudice towards Sir Adam's birth. And ironically, the two betrayers quickly became just as hated by the side they switched to, making it so that both the Greens and the Blacks hated the betrayers. And prejudice over their birth and blood was also a big part of why. Wasn't just their behavior, but who they were. Hardhue's ambitions were growing daily, and not only did he declare his intent to be king, but actually began wearing a crown. And a prophecy was spoken of that said, when the hammer shall fall upon the dragon, a new king shall arise and none shall stand before him. Of course, it will be Robert Baratheon slaying Rhaegar that will seemingly fulfill this prophecy, not anything hard Hugh Hammer does, but he thought so at the time. And as we'll see later in the episode, though much is made of Robert's Targaryen grandmother, that grandmother's mother was a Blackwood queen. Robert was highborn and very charismatic. He was readily accepted by many as king. At Tumbleton, the high-ranking green nobility on hand were outraged that a not-so-charismatic bastard-born blacksmith would grasp at such a lofty title despite his dragon Vermithor, the same one ridden by the old King Jaehaerys himself. So when Sir Adam, Bloody Ben, the Tullys, and the rest arrived at Tumbleton to retake the town, they found the place in chaos. The Greens' leadership were too busy fighting each other and were caught horribly unprepared for battle in a place that had just been made a shell of its former self via burning, looting, depravity, and contempt. As awful as the fish feed was, the Second Battle of Tumbleton may have left an even deeper impression. But many young men and women in Westerosi history have seen battles, have seen so much fighting and dying. However, not very many have seen dragons do battle. Not many have seen them dance and die. But Ben Blackwood did see all this. And he was still quite a lot younger than even Rob Stark was. His varied experience throughout the war made him an important witness, and he was sought out by Grand Maester Munkin afterwards. Munkin wrote The Dance of the Dragons, A True Telling. He interviewed Bloody Ben for that book of history, especially with regard to the actual combat between dragons themselves. History calls the struggle between King Aegon II and his half-sister Rhaenyra the Dance of the Dragons, but only at Tumbleton did the dragons ever truly dance. Benjacob Blackwood watched the struggle from atop his horse fifty yards away. Vermithor's size and weight were too much for sea smoke to contend with, Lord Blackwood told Grand Maester Munkin many years later, and he would surely have torn the silver-grey dragon to pieces if Tessarion had not fallen from the sky at that very moment to join the fight. What a sight that must have been. While the fish feed was overwhelming, this might be pure awe. Given we're told he lived a long life, when Ben passed away, he may have been one of the last living people in the Seven Kingdoms who had witnessed dragons in combat. That would have meant he was someone to seek out for story time. <laughs> and it's Tyrion, too, who quotes at one point that when you see a dragon flying, you can go home because you've seen the best there is to see. Something to that effect. Well, Bloody Ben is a living example of that, or was a living example of that in his time. There were four dragons at Tumbleton, one of them never got involved, Silverwing. The other three, Tessarion, Seasmoke, and Vermithor, did and died. The former at Bloody Ben's command. Tessarion, the Blue Queen, lasted until sunset. Thrice she tried to regain the sky, and thrice failed. 
By a late afternoon, she seemed to be in pain, so Lord Blackwood summoned his best archer, a longbowman known as Billy Burley, who took up a position a hundred yards away, beyond the range of the dying dragon's fires, and sent three shafts into her eye as she lay helpless on the ground. This was an enemy dragon and no longer a threat to anyone, but he ordered mercy, perhaps a sign of his high-mindedness, well, relative to Westerosi high-mindedness, of course, Despite the carnage, the battle was a great success due to the complete lack of preparation by the Greens. But the Blacks had no siege equipment and no more dragon. This mattered a lot because despite the destruction within Tumbleton, the walls still stood, so they couldn't get inside. Since we suspect Red Rob died inside the town, they may not have recovered his body, if they could even find it and identify it, that is. But Lord Blackwood did find another. At moonrise, the river lords abandoned the fields of the carrion crows, fading back into the hills. One of them, the boy Ben Blackwood, carried with him the broken body of Sir Adam Valerian, found dead beside his dragon. His bones would rest at Raventree Hall for eight years, but in 138 AC, his brother Alan would have them returned to Driftmark and entombed in Hull, the town of his birth. On his tomb is engraved a single word, loyal. I wonder about these conversations. I imagine a lot of mutual respect between Blackwood and Valarian, not just over this, but they have a few other things in common. His descendants would have an additional thing in common with the Valarians, marriages and children with House Targaryen. Hmm? Ben and Lord Allen, a.k.a. Oakenfist, were of similar age as well. Oakenfist would be about three years older, and he too lived a long life. For now, the histories mostly tell us of the events during the war. The queen had been slain, and for a time, the river lords were in a state of uncertainty. It seems many had returned to their lands to wait it out. In King's Landing, Lord Boros Baratheon had taken over and taken charge, and Aegon II and his mother, Queen Alicent, had begun ruling with a heavy hand in an effort to shore up their newly restored rule. But this aggressive approach backfired, hardening the hearts of their foes. The blacks rallied once more, this time to the new lord of River Run. To him gathered Benjicott Blackwood of Raventree, already a seasoned warrior at three and ten, his fierce young aunt, Black Alley, with three hundred bows, Lady Sabatha Frey, the merciless and grasping Lady of the Twins, Lord Hugo Vance of Wayfarer's Rest, Lord Jorah Malister of Seaguard, Lord Rodan Darry of Darry, I, and even Humphrey Bracken, Lord of Stonehenge, whose house had hitherto supported King Aegon's cause. Well, that's pretty serious. Bracken and Blackwood on the same side? Hmm. And notice that, as it was with Red Rob and Brendan Rivers, Black Alley leads a force of 300 bowmen. But this Lord Tully Elmo died less than two months later. His brother Kermit replaced him as Lord. Three leaders emerged in the ensuing final days of the Dance of the Dragons. Lord Tully, his brother Oscar, and Bloody Ben Blackwood. They came to be known as the Lads due to their extreme youth. The battle on the King's Road was the final battle of the Dance of the Dragons. It was no mere skirmish, yet two boys were given two-thirds of the command. For Benjicott, it wasn't even the first time as he had commanded the center at Second Tumbleton. What a veteran this kid is. Rather than a hindrance, their youth proved an advantage, and the backing of Black Alley and Lady Sabatha was made greater because of their gender. Lord Baratheon believed... This army of theirs facing him had to be weak because it was led by boys and women. It's notable that this Lord Baratheon had four daughters and no sons. <laughs> and none other than Robert Baratheon took the throne itself when he was but 21. 
Ned Stark was still a teenager leading armies in the rebellion, not to mention Rob Stark himself, even younger. So this led to Lord Baratheon viewing his enemies with contempt, with overconfidence, and he attacked their superior position. When they were engaged, Ben Blackwood struck, breaking Boros's flank. Lady Alisan, who had her own nickname Black Alley, of course, led her archers in taking down Boros's knights when they charged in the first place. You heard this described in the quote we opened the episode with. Kermit Tully completed the victory when he took Boros's life. Then... And the young river lords known as the Lads, whose host had defeated him, were within a stone's throw of the city, while Lord Stark was coming down the King's Road with a host of his own. The Lads indeed marched on King's Landing with Lord Cregan Stark. Aegon, who was still in the capital, seemed resolute to fight instead of surrender, until he was found dead with poison on his lips. And the war concluded, according to most. Bloody Ben played a small role in the governance of the realm afterwards. Despite his success in war, it was easy to exclude him from power because of his youth, though he certainly had clout. He was passed over for consideration as a regent or the new hand explicitly because of his youth. It was suggested, though, that he might marry Princess Bela Targaryen, though that seems to only have been briefly considered. It would have been another possible example of Blackwood and Targaryen blood matching, meaning old gods and Targaryen blood. But we'll have to wait for that to happen. And unfortunately, we don't know who he did marry and if he had children, though it seems likely he did. One who might be his daughter is coming up shortly, but next it's time for his aunt, who was not afraid of Lord Cregan, and we know that because she married him. And Ben himself got a taste of some of the worst winter has to offer and visited the North himself for their wedding. That experience may have been useful when he famously led a thousand of his men to the Vale a few years after the dance to help settle the Civil War there. They endured hardships in the mountain passes, cold and lack of food in particular. By the time they arrived where they needed to be, his portion of the army was incapable of fighting. But I suspect some of them managed better than others because some of them were Northerners. Now, how Northern men came to be Blackwood men is part of our next section and is largely attributed to our next character. Black Alley. Huntress, horsebreaker, and archer without peer, Black Alley had little of a woman's softness about her. Many thought her to be of that same ilk as Sabbath Frey, for they were oft in one another's company and had been known to share a tent whilst on the march. Yet in King's Landing, whilst accompanying her young nephew Benjacott at court and council, she had met Cregan Stark and conceived a liking for the stern Northman. And Lord Cregan, a widower these past three years, had responded in kind. That same ilk is, of course, a same-sex relationship. Maesters aren't allowed to have relationships at all, so they're not the best at interpreting or understanding any sort of relationship. Black Alley was bisexual, most certainly, though. She was present in battle at the start of the war. Recall that it was supposedly her arrow that slew Amos Bracken, who had just slain her brother, Lord Samwell, Bloody Ben's father. It was probably quite painful to lose her brother, but perhaps also quite satisfying to slay the heir to House Bracken. After all, while it's true that they've been feuding off and on for thousands of years, Bracken and Blackwood, they've never wiped each other out. So most of the time they just kill each other's men or destroy each other's property. The sons and daughters usually survive to fight another day and do. So back at Raven Tree Hall, I would guess a lot of toasts were raised for her shot. 
into that helm. I don't think it's a stretch that it's been commemorated in art form. He has maybe some tapestries of Black Alley's shot of killing Amos Bracken. They would also have been toasting Ben, though, her nephew, who was too young to have had children of his own. It's even possible Allie was his heir. If so, it's even more outstanding that she fought in multiple battles. I suspect she ruled Raven Tree while Ben was at the fish feed before the rallying by Sir Adam before Second Tumbleton, which she was part of. 300 bows. Again, 300 bows. Maybe some few of Red Rob's men escaped the first battle after all and rejoined the Blackwood forces. But this is a powerful house we're talking about, so perhaps they simply had a lot of bowmen left despite all the battles to this point. She was also present at the Battle of the King's Road and the archers pulled off a miniature version of the real-life Battle of Agincourt where archers killed many horses, leaving the knights to struggle in the mud because it had rained, ditto here, while even more arrows rained down on them, ditto here. For six days after Aegon's death, Cregan Stark governed in King's Landing, trying hard to restore the broken kingdom to peace, or to get it back into war again, depending on how you look at it. One of his first moves was to act on the famous Stark honor and seek justice for the poisoned king, despite the fact that the poisoned king had been his enemy. Ben Blackwood was also put off by the use of poison to kill the king and Black Alley as well, probably, giving us a sense that such a deed is worse in the eyes of old God's culture. Whether or not she agreed with this, she apparently found plenty to like about Lord Cregan, who had lost his first wife while birthing their son Rickon. She had also had a goal to accomplish via this match, though. It wasn't just about getting married or about being attracted. You see, Lord Stark had 22 men arrested, including the sea snake Corlys Velaryon, who had been one of Rhaenyra's larger supporters. Cregan's stubborn insistence on prosecuting those who had poisoned the king was perhaps noble in a vacuum, but executing the sea snake would make an enemy of House Velaryon. And at this time, they were one of the most powerful houses in Westeros. This was a very high cost to pay for honor, and it's not even necessarily the most honorable thing. Furthermore, Cregan was on somewhat shaky legal ground. So while we can say he was making a stand based on principles, it wasn't necessarily a stand based on law. With that in mind, one can see why a compromise was probably a wiser course. But Cregan was not of a mind to compromise in general, really. The guy could have been called uncompromising. And he was frightening. Not in a Tywin or Roos way, not a cruel man, but harsh. So very, very harsh and intense. Overbearing, fierce, and proud. More like Stannis, but a northerner through and through, not willing to bend to southern ways, and much younger than any of them, including Stannis, certainly Tywin and Roos. Consider that Lord Tully just slew Lord Burroughs Baratheon with a morning star to the face, and that his brother Sir Oscar mentioned here will soon found a sellsword company and go overseas. Consider that Bloody Ben led a screaming charge in that same battle where Boros died and faced Tumbleton and the fish feed. So they faced all those things bravely and laughed about it afterwards. But when they faced Lord Cregan Stark? The Lord of Winterfell was 23, only a few years older than the Lords of Raventree and Riverrun. Yet Stark was a man and they were boys, as all those who saw them together seemed to sense. The lads shrink in his presence... Mushroom says. Whenever the Wolf of the North stalked into a room, Bloody Ben would recall that he was but three and ten, whilst Lord Tully and his brother blustered and stammered and flushed as red as their hair. And not just him. He was made all the more intimidating by the presence of his army in King's Landing. So he was 
not only a dominating personality, he had an army to back him up. And people were a bit scared of that as well. Especially those who knew why, who knew the details, which is that they came south specifically to die, to ease the burden of feeding their families. Those with fewer mouths to feed fared better in the dark days, so it had long been the custom in the north for old men, younger sons, the unwed, the childless, the homeless, and the hopeless to leave hearth and home when the first snows fell, so that their kin might live to see another spring. Victory was secondary to the men of these winter armies. They marched for glory, adventure, plunder, and most of all, a worthy end. They thought the suggestion of fighting the Valerians might give Lord Cregan pause, but it had the reverse effect. He wanted a fight because his men did. And without it, well, often when people want to fight and don't get one, they start one. And that is what Cregan seemed to be intent on doing. He wanted to find them someone to fight. In fact, he was willing to take on all the great houses. And it didn't sound like talk. It didn't sound like bluster. They believed him. A whole army of huge, angry, hairy dudes who came down south for the purpose of fighting and dying, only to find that there's no one to fight. This is a bad state of affair. This is <laughs> a tightrope walk. The south might have had trouble fighting this northern host if they were ready for it. But the south had already been ravaged by war, and these northerners were fresh and more than willing. It's difficult to impress on us just how terrifying this must have been to those in the know. The Southerners make fun of Northerners a lot, but they, it's poking fun at how they look and talk and how they worship. In reality, they're, uh, they don't want to fight them. They're a bit intimidated by this toughness. At least they could usually take heart with the fact that they typically outnumber Northerners. But in this case, they can't even claim that. So it went from looking like the war was finally winding down to a precarious situation that threatened to open the floodgates of blood and battle again. The friction here was rooted in cultural differences. Cregan's position on just about everything was Northern in attitude. He wanted to handle things like a Northerner and deal out justice like a Northerner. He didn't trust the compromises the South had become accustomed to. He wanted to teach them a lesson almost, or at least not bend their ways. And though he intimidated the younger lords and made them feel their age, he was not an experienced man himself. His father died when he was 13, and he became preoccupied with reclaiming the rule of Winterfell from his uncle. So he was experienced in some ways, but he may not have ever even been south before this. So the south is like entirely new to him. All this culture, all these places, all these people. He didn't act intimidated, but he was naive about some things. It's fitting then that the person who settled the issue, the one who bridged the gap between North and South, was a Blackwood, someone who understood Creek and Stark's attitude while also comprehending and living amongst Southern attitudes. Black Alley seemed to transcend cultural barriers already, too, on top of that. So this was right up her alley. Black Alley got the uncompromising rigid Lord Stark to compromise. It's not explicitly stated, but it seems like he fell for her hard. We're given quite a bit of dialogue between the two in Fire and Blood, oh, quite a bit, and it seems like foreplay. The portrayal is clear enough. The feeling was likely mutual. But she knew how to use leverage when she had it. She let him take his shot. And she knows a thing or two about taking shots at powerful people. Archery joke, yeah. She also knew he wasn't likely to find anyone else like her anywhere else, ever. She knew her worth, in other words. 
how many badass archery women from who worship the old gods were there around for Cregan? <laughs> She's probably the only one. So a condition of their marriage was to break this impasse regarding the sea snake's execution and thus continuation of the war. But there was still the issue of so many northern soldiers ready for a glorious end in battle with no glorious battles to fight in. Lord Stark had marched south with a great host made up in large part of men unwanted and unneeded in the north, whose return would bring great hardship and mayhaps even death for the loved ones they had left behind. Legend and Mushroom tells us that it was Lady Alisan who suggested an answer. The lands along the Trident were full of widows, she reminded Lord Stark. Women, many burdened with young children, who had sent their husbands off to fight with one lord or another, only for them to fall in battle. With winter at hand, strong backs and willing hands would be welcome in many a hearth and home. In the end, more than a thousand Northmen accompanied Black Alley and her nephew, Lord Benjacott, when they returned to the Riverlands after the royal wedding. A wolf for every widow, Mushroom japed. He will warm her bed in winter and gnaw her bones come spring. Yet hundreds of marriages were made at the so-called widow fairs held at Raventree, River Run, Stony Sept, the Twins and Fair Market. Those Northmen who did not wish to marry instead swore their swords to lords both great and small as guards and men-at-arms. A few, sad to say, did turn to outlawry and met evil ends. But for the most part, Lady Alisanne's matchmaking was a great success. The resettled Northmen not only strengthened the Riverlords who welcomed them, particularly House Tully and House Blackwood, but also helped revive and spread the worship of the old gods south of the Neck. So she solved that too. This is the kind of problem solving through personal diplomacy we expect Sansa to excel at. We may come back later to see that there's even more Sansa Alisanne parallels. Hey, there's already Sansa Queen Alisanne parallels. Why not Black Alley, someone probably named after Queen Alisanne. It's like a triumvirate of parallels. This infusion of Northerners into the Riverlands is a building block for the Riverlords' later willingness to join with the North in Rob Stark's kingdom some 170-ish years later. In the short term, she would produce four Stark daughters, Sarah, Alice, Rhea, and Mariah. They were married at the Winterfell Heart Tree, which she probably thought was pretty small. <laughs> Not what a husband wants to hear on his wedding night. Bloody Ben was in attendance, though he had a rough trip up there with some brigands stealing the gifts they brought for the wedding, not to mention dealing with all the snow. Winterfell and Raventree Hall probably had a lot of that to deal with after the fallout from years of civil war. Brigandage had probably peaked. So both Black Alley and Bloody Ben would have some managing of their home territory to do over the next few years. But life seems to have gone well enough. There weren't any major wars or conflicts we know of anyway after this. Black Alley did pass before Lord Cregan. He was the old man in the North and lived a really long life. Perhaps Ben returned to the North for her funeral and a return visit to Raventree Hall during her life before she died seems entirely possible. Maybe her daughters wanted to see the great tree or she wanted them to see it. Cregan maybe would have wanted to see it too. Now, Ben lived live a long life as well. So he may have been still in contact with Cregan. He may have known when Cregan married a third time. Maybe he went to that wedding himself. Much, much later, this marriage will have resulted in a great grandson named Willem, Willem Stark. And he will also marry a Blackwood named Melantha. And that's Ned Stark's great grandmother. We'll get to her later in the episode. 
Though we don't know the fate of Cregan's daughters with Black Alley, we do know the inspiration for one of the names. Rhea Stark might look like an anagram for Arya. It is the same four letters after all. But it almost certainly refers to Rhea Golden, an artist who's done work for Fantasy Flight Games. Those are the makers of the Song of Ice and Fire games and Dark Sword miniatures. Most recently, she drew the graphic novel of Starport, a script written by George R. R. Martin. She's also worked as one of George's minions and is a lovely person directly responsible, as it happens, for our first time hanging out with George himself. We're at about the halfway point where we like to acknowledge the contributions of member Westorians. If you'd like to join their ranks, just go to historyofwesteros.com or patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Members get access to things like bonus episodes. We have quite a few built up now, scripts, shout outs, and other fun stuff. Starting off with our Blood Rider patrons, including Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kakavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Kerry, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall, and a laurel of glory in the name of love, to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tokian and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. And thanks to our sellsword captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Chiron Callsbane is Captain of the Stone Shields, the Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Hema Helminth is Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. Shepard, the Shepherd of Essos, says all men are sheep before the Shepherd. He's heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First is their motto. Lord Brandon Brewer is of Castle Blackrune. He's captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. Black Alexand, the Bastard of Spears, is leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. Vorian of House Betterfetter is captain of the Golden Fetters. We face oppression with style. Aegon the Underestimated, captain of the Clanking Dragons. Our clank is clank as clank. Lady Sarah Connolly the Willful says, Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, and she's Jenny's patron. When Blackwood catches Blackfire. Black Alley was probably still alive when Aegon IV the Unworthy became king in 172 AC. When he ascended to the throne, Aegon took as lover a young Bracken girl, Lady Barba. She had been one of the ladies who accompanied the imprisoned princesses of the Maiden Vault by command of Baylor the Blessed, who had been king at that time. When the Maiden Vault was opened and Barba came forth, she caught Aegon's eye and before long became his mistress. The arrangement started out pretty well for the Brackens. Barba's father, Lord Bracken, was named Hand, and Barba gave birth to their son, Agor, while Queen Nerys birthed a daughter, Daenerys, who nearly killed her. During the birth, not after. There was a brief cynical hope by the Brackens that Nerys would perish, Barba would then become queen, and perhaps Agor, a.k.a. he would become Bittersteel, could have usurped the status of heir to the throne. After all, Aegon did threaten to name one of his bastards his new heir, and that would have been Bittersteel at the time. As it was, Nerys did not die. And upon her recovery, both Bracken, father and daughter, were sent from court back to Stonehenge. This was obviously a pretty bitter pill to swallow for the Brackens, having come so close to royalty, and there was probably only one thing that could make the situation any worse. And that's exactly what happened. They were replaced by Blackwoods. Melissa the Great. 
Aegon IV had died long before Jaime had been born, but he recalled enough of the history of his reign to guess what must have happened next. Only later he put the Bracken girl aside and took up with the Blackwood. Was that the way of it? Lady Melissa, Hoster confirmed. Missy, they called her. There's a statue of her in our godswood. She was much more beautiful than Barbara Bracken. Jaime first, a dance with dragons. I'm sure Hoster Blackwood here is basing his opinion on photographs. Yeah, they're all, they're just, they're competitive about everything, aren't they? But this is likely a debate inherited from his ancestors, after all. People who actually saw the two. This was a rare new field of battle for the Blackwood-Bracken dispute to be fought, though. Like, who's prettier? (laughs) But also, the battle, the scene, takes place in the throne room, or perhaps more accurately, the king's bedroom. The Brackens won it in, they got it, then they lost it to a Blackwood. Then they got it back and lost it again. All that is more detailed than we have here in this episode. Check out the Blackfire episodes if you want the full story. Really, like Barbara and Bethany Bracken later on, these girls have some agency, but ultimately their time at court depended on the king's whims. You couldn't really say no to him. But the Brackens tried to manipulate him in other ways. By accounts, Barbara Bracken was a schemer, She was ambitious and at least a little bit ruthless. Ditto her father, so it seems. That's almost to be expected, especially in the time of Aegon IV, who attracted such types. And that's what seems to make Melissa so very special here. She transcended all the court squabbling and intrigue other than from the Brackens. There's no evidence that Melissa was hated by anyone. Again, I think of Sansa from early in A Song of Ice and Fire, stuck with a really awful royal forced to pretend she likes it. Not the court, maybe not loving her, but making friends despite that. Aegon IV was awful, but no one killed him like they killed Joffrey. Joffrey threatened to have bastards with Sansa after he married Marjorie, and Sansa realized there wasn't much she could do about it. That sounds a lot like Aegon IV. It doesn't seem as though Barba's scheming nor Melissa's friendliness mattered all that much to him personally since he was a slave to pleasure. In other words, he didn't esteem them for their ethics or lack thereof. He just saw it all as a form of entertainment or profit. If two houses are going to fight over him, well, he's all for it. Melissa's father, the unnamed Lord Blackwood here, may also have been cut from a different cloth. The recurring pattern with many, most, of Aegon the Unworthy's lovers was that the hand of the king was the man who had most recently found the king a new favorite girl. Not so with this Lord Blackwood, though. Maybe just he had already died or was somehow otherwise unsuited for the role. Nevertheless, George wrote it so that the one house that seems to have escaped all this scandal, all this corruption, despite being in the midst of it, is the Blackwoods. Melissa's relationship with the king was seemingly less corrupt, if not a lot less corrupt, than all these others. Though quite possibly Lord Blackwood did, you know, make sure his daughter and the king met. But even that is a stretch because Aegon the Unworthy already had a reputation for going around to different castles and asking for the daughters, for his use. But anyway, perhaps the lack of clear ambition helped Melissa's reputation, which was astonishingly clean, like we say, amidst all this dirt. Knowing that she was simply there because the king took a fancy to her and not because she had wiled her way in, that she had some other thing she was after, maybe that made a difference. But I think the biggest factor was her. See, she was incredibly popular. 
It's said that she was even friends with Nerys, the queen. This is highly unusual. The queen friendly with the king's lover? Of course, the queen very much disliked the king for a number of straightforward reasons. But still, openly showing friendship towards your husband's lover is really not a Westerosi thing. You usually don't see that sort of high-mindedness. They're usually expected to be competitive. And he had a multitude of lovers, and Melissa's the only one described as on good terms with Nerys. So it's not like Nerys was befriending all of her husband's lovers. And not just her, but their brother, the upright and celebrated Aemon the Dragon Knight, was also said to be on good terms with Melissa. And that's a... Judging people by their friends... These are two very high marks, Nerys and Aemon the Dragon Knight. And then later, Prince Daron, the son of Aegon, whose mother's being cheated on here, he liked her too. This is the guy that became King Daron the Good, and he was, deserved that name. So yet another person of good character that befriended Melissa. These good relationships are cited also as key for Bloodraven's acceptance and advancement later at court. It he became close to Daron, his mother may have paved the way. In fact, it seems likely. This is a woman who transcended normal social barriers and judgments, considered kind and generous, and good-natured is one thing, but she was apparently historically kind and generous. Right, another level, like, as good as it gets. It's no wonder she's remembered via statue at Raven Tree Hall. And I doubt they built her a statue because she was lover to the king. Or just for having kids with him. Yeah, she had bastards with the king. Let's give her a statue. No, I think it implies something more than that. Maybe while she was with him, he was less bad. Curbing the worst in him. Not stopped it, of course. No one could stop Aegon IV from being awful other than death. But maybe she slowed it down. Or maybe it's just something simpler like, because of Melissa, the Blackwoods were showered with gifts. You know, that's a good reason to build her a statue. Uh, Maybe laws or taxes or rights were altered or granted or something like that, a carve-out for the Blackwoods. I mean, Aegon IV was known for doing things like that that weren't necessarily upright or legal or fair. But if it benefited the Blackwoods, you know, they would still be uh, happy about it. They'd still be thankful to her. And she was his favorite for five years. A lot can happen in five years. So Aegon IV wasn't just corruptible. He corrupted other things. He corrupted things around him, which is all the more amazing that Melissa was not corrupted with him. There's the example of the pair of hills named the Mother's Teats, which he renamed for Barba, then later for Melissa, a.k.a. Missy. Both houses have owned the territory, though neither of them do now. (laughs) It was a silly thing to do, Aegon, very petty, And the only net effect was to give the Brackens and Blackwoods one more thing to argue over. To this day, they each refer to the hills by the name of the woman from their family. So they used to fight over the land. Now they fight over what to call the land. (laughs) It's perhaps a focal point for how childish the whole thing is. You know, their feud, being petty about names and breast sizes and so forth. It's just, this is not supposed to look good for either side. We keep coming back to how good the Blackwoods look over the course of events. History keeps being shining a friendly light, a positive light on them, but this is a one big stain on their history that keeps coming back. But Melissa seems to have been above that too. She didn't stoop to the old rivalry either, as far as we can tell. Melissa's time at court 
five years is a while, but of course, five years is had to end. Surprise, surprise, it was the Brackens who helped end that time period. Lord Bracken was still likely pretty annoyed at getting dismissed, and his ambitions probably hadn't gone away. Instead of sulking, he tried to arrange for his younger daughter to get in the king's good graces with the help of Barba, so who knew what the king liked. And it worked. Lady Bethany was chosen as the new lover for the king when Aegon visited Stonehenge in 177 to visit Aegor. Bethany played her part, and soon enough, Melissa was just gone. She went back to Raventree Hall, apparently, and it's likely her children with him went back with her, given that seems to have been the norm for the children to return with the lover. Now, Brendan Rivers, Bloodraven, would return to court later if he ever left. There's a chance he stayed. The girls, Gwyneth and Mia, are unknowns to us. We're on the lookout for information on them at some point in the future. And as the eldest, Mia would be the first child known to us, born of an old god's house and a Targaryen. Remember that we almost had that with Daella Targaryen and Royce Blackwood. We almost had it with Bloody Ben and Bela Targaryen. Rogue Prince Daemon Targaryen married Rhea Royce prior to this. Now that counts as an old god's and Targaryen marriage, but they didn't have any kids. As with so many characters from this era who didn't die in battle, we do not know when Melissa died or how long she lived. Same with her daughters. It appears that she never remarried, and perhaps she was grateful for that. Because given her personality and status, I think she could have if she wanted to. So it seems like a choice. She was young when she went to King's Landing and young when she returned. So there is the possibility of a long and interesting life following this. And maybe it's during this period that she earned that statue. Sadly, there's clues she died fairly young. It's mentioned that Aegon IV continued to see his other favorites even after they ceased to be his number one favorite. But that detail is lacking for Melissa. He continued to see Barba even after she had been set aside. But he didn't continue to see Melissa as far as we know, which might be because she died. Furthermore, Bloodraven is said to have been assisted in his rise at court by how fondly she had been remembered. Now, maybe it's just remembering her time at court, but it kind of sounds like remembered for her lifetime. Hmm. And Brendan rose at court early in his own life, which would imply that she was dead young herself. So, well, what we do know is that she's buried beneath the Great Weirwood. And there's a very good chance we learn more about her in the future. I just hope we don't find out it was poisoned by the Brackens that killed her. But that is where we're going next. Not her, but a Blackwood death at the hands of a Bracken. Again. The gang reignites the rivalry. After resolving the siege of Riveron, Jamie leads his men towards Pennytree. And young Hoster, the hostage Blackwood, tells him a few things about this locally famous spot situated between those very same hills called the Teats. Notably, it has a holdfast with tall stone walls, unusual for a village. This is likely because it's a royal fief, meaning owned by the crown. The fact that the crown owns a village between Bracken and Blackwood territory, right between the teats, so to speak, is very curious. Jamie doesn't really think much about it, but we have. Our guess is that the crown seized it after getting sick of the Blackwoods and Brackens fighting over it for so long. And this couldn't have been that long ago since we just told you how Aegon IV gave it from Bracken to Blackwood. 
One thing Jamie does think about but doesn't inquire on is why they nail pennies to the tree in Penny Tree in the first place. He doesn't want to ruin the mystery by hearing the answer, so he doesn't ask. I take this as a joke about George R. R. Martin wanting to reveal that later. Penny Tree is where Duncan the Tall's master, Sir Arlen of Penny Tree, was from. So the thinking is that we'll see the story and several more reveals, such as the full story of why the crown sees this place in a Duncan Egg novel. And the next planned one is the village hero. That really sounds like a fit, doesn't it? Let's set the scene. The Bracken and Blackwood feud was at one of its hottest points due to Otho Bracken, also known as the Brute of Bracken, killing Quentin Blackwood in 206 AC during a tourney at King's Landing. Quentin was likely a close relative of Melissa's, probably her uncle. Obviously, the Blackwoods were never going to accept the act as an accident, whether that's true or not, and the whole thing got started again. A lot of this is spoken of during the first Duncan Egg story, The Hedge Knight, which is set three years after Quentin's death, and the Blackwoods are still pretty upset about it. During the reign of Daron II and at the tourney of Ashford Meadow, Benefer, Robert, and Roland Blackwood all take part, and Benefer was the heir of Raventree at the time. After the melee, we hear that Lord Bracken is dying, which means that Otho the Brute stood to become the new Lord of Stonehenge. This was an insult the Blackwoods were not willing to tolerate, and everything sort of kicked off, giving us the perfect type of situation that Duncan Egg normally wander into. You know, coming in between a dispute, rock and a hard place type thing, or stone and a tree. We could have Egg meeting his future wife, Betha, and maybe have some kind of mirror in the story that way too. Regardless, the death of a Lord Blackwood at the hands of a Bracken is a big deal. They've gone to war over far less. We know via the World Book, for example, that in 268, there was a dispute between Blackwood and Bracken over a mill. The only reason this particular quibble is worth mentioning is that Tywin Lannister, Hand of the King by that time, originally ruled in favor of the Blackwoods before Ares intervened and instead handed the mill back to the Brackens. Ares going against Tywin was normal in those days. He was so wrapped up in pettiness and trying to make Tywin look bad that he would just do the opposite of what Tywin did semi-regularly. In disputes between two houses, it's particularly simple. Just pick the other side. What makes this example special, though, is that in his obsession with undermining Tywin, he went against his own family. That's right. Let's not forget, Ares' grandmother was Queen Betha Blackwood. Grandmother, not like distant, distant relationship. Grandmother. To many, the most famous Blackwood and Bracken rivalry is that between Bloodraven and Bittersteel. With Bloodraven still alive, I think we can call him alive, <laughs> and Bittersteel's legacy very much threatening Westeros in the form of the Golden Company, well, it's time we move on to that Blackwood Queen. The Blackwood Queen. While Melissa was a lover of the king, mother to three of his children, and quite influential besides, Betha was the actual queen and lover of the king since it was not a political marriage, mother of five princes and princesses. Like her husband, the king, she probably didn't see it coming, being queen, that is. He was, after all, Aegon the Unlikely, the fourth son of a fourth son. Yet it happened. Perhaps for as long as 26 or so years, she was the queen. We know that when her husband, the king, died at Summerhall. So she couldn't have been queen longer than that. But it's possible she died before that. If so, she clearly wasn't there for Summerhall. So it remains a huge open question what influence, if any, she had on that momentous, notorious event. After all, it contains characters we know from the Duncan Egg novels, the ancestors of Jon Snow, Danny, the Baratheons, Rhaegar, etc. 
And it involves exciting topics like dragon hatching and wildfire and mystery and more mystery. When you include the kind of mysticism associated with House Blackwood, it puts even more fuel on the wildfire. Back in part one, we mentioned Agnes Blackwood's supposed prophecy that the whore line would end in fire and blood. The maesters question that, and fair play on questioning it, but the concept remains even if that particular example is an embellishment. The notion that a Blackwood, every once in a while, would be born with abilities, green dreams, or skin changing. It's not fanciful. It's supported, really. Betha and Egg married young, too, when she was 19 and he was about a year older. A fandom theory I support is this previously mentioned plans for her to be in the Village Hero story. Again, that's the yet unpublished fourth Duncan Egg novella. She was likely a close relative of Quentin, the one killed by the brood of Bracken, meaning not a cousin. Not his sister either, but niece, daughter, or granddaughter are all very possible. In and around this era, George has placed a bit of authorial fog. There is less detail than one might expect in the world of Ice and Fire, and that's why we know so little about Duncan Egg's later years, which, of course, covers the life of Betha and a lot of other fascinating characters. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that when they meet, Betha had already dreamed of Egg. Or, of course, I wouldn't be surprised if nothing like that happens either. Egg showed an interest in prophecy early on in life, though, so maybe they bonded over mystical stuff. And maybe he noted whatever Rhaegar noted later. It seems I must be a warrior. Whatever documents Rhaegar found, maybe Egg had seen some of those too. The Egg and Betha marriage is such an interesting one because it was based entirely in love. How many Targaryens could say that politics had no part in their union? Not many, certainly. But destiny may have. Rhaegar and Lyanna fell in love, and they represent a bonding of ice and fire. Jon is the product of that union. Not to mention... Aegon IV, a Targaryen, and Melissa, a Blackwood, created Bloodraven. Aegon V, or perhaps Betha herself, may have noticed the unusual nature of their own relationship as it pertained to whatever was in the scrolls regarding this prophecy. We know Rhaegar had a plan, sort of, with Lyanna. Maybe Egg had seen the same documents, or Betha. Mm. We know she was stubborn and willful. Perhaps those were qualities that endeared her to Aegon, as he was also stubborn and willful. Though we don't know a lot about her or him as an adult, really, it sounds like they were not the opposites attract type. <laughs> but if having stubbornness in common um, is a positive, it's also something that causes friction from time to time. We might think that a Blackwood would be on the side of mysticism, but we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. She may have been against all this prophecy stuff and against the idea of Summer Hall. Egg was known to have been pro-commoner with his rule and attempted many reforms. Again, we don't know what Betha thought about that, but I, I like to think she was on his side with that as well. It's hard to be, to push for something that big, for such a large-scale change without the support of your family, to go against your own family like that. But it's possible. And again, as it pertains to Summerhall, whether she was pro trying to hatch eggs or not is completely off the page for us. We have no idea. She may have been dead long before the ritual was even conceived, let alone performed. But I lean towards her being there. It would just be such a tragic irony, uh, at least tragically fitting. It's almost pre-foreshadowed by the Battle of the Blackwater. Because Davos's ship was also a victim of wildfire. You might say, wait, what does Davos's ship have to do with anything here? Well, Davos's ship, which died to wildfire, 
was also named Black Betha. Raven's eggs. So Betha is the grandmother to the Mad King, as we said, the great-grandmother to Danny and Rhaegar, and great-great-grandmother to Jon Snow. She's the great-grandmother of Robert, Stannis, and Renly, whose grandmother was Rael, Betha's youngest child. Their youngest son was Daron. And though Daron isn't exactly an uncommon Targaryen name, they were both likely fans of Daron II, meaning Aegon and Black Betha both probably liked that king who had passed when they were around nine and nine or 10 years old. Despite the fact that she and Egg married for love, Betha put considerable effort into making sure that her own children found more politically advantageous matches. Already she had Egg's backing that the incestuous nature of House Targaryen was and needed to go away. Daron also was trying to make that go away. So this is one of the reasons we think they saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And the better choice was to forge strong relationships with the other realms of the kingdom anyway, in this era of no dragons, and especially seeing as Egg's small folk-focused policies were angering and alienating so many of the noble lords that there was a lot of incentive for them to sort of bring some of these lords back into the fold on their side by marriage alliance. Marriages are often a solution to that kind of problem. But it didn't work out, did it? The seed is strong, you might say. The children of the willful Black Betha and willful Aegon Targaryen proved not to fall too far from the family tree and all chose love over duty because that always goes well in Westeros. Betha's first son and heir to the throne, Duncan, set the tone. Betha had arranged a very suitable marriage to House Baratheon, but Duncan instead fell for a common woman from the Riverlands in 239. She was known as Jenny of Oldstones. Despite his attitude towards commoners, this was unacceptable to the nobility. Despite so many people begging and or trying to convince him, Duncan stayed with Jenny and abdicated as Prince of Dragonstone, elevating his younger brother Jaehaerys to heir of the Iron Throne. But there were other repercussions. Storm's End was ruled by Lord Lionel Baratheon, the Laughing Storm. Despite the jovial name, he was proud like so many other great lords, and he was very unhappy at missing out on this marriage for his family. So unhappy, he began a rebellion, which may have ended quickly, but there was some blood spilled first. It ended specifically when a duel was arranged versus Duncan the Tall and Lionel Baratheon himself, which Duncan won. The result was that Rael, the youngest of Egg and Betha's kids, would come to marry the Baratheons instead. She was offered up as a peace offering, basically, becoming betrothed to Lionel's heir, Ormond, and was packed off to Storm's End to serve as a cupbearer in the meantime. And this is the Targaryen blood basis for Robert's claim to the throne. So really, Rael got left out of the whole we get to marry who we want thing. <laughs> Too bad for her, but it sounds like she did okay. Prince Jaehaerys did not copy his brother in falling for a common woman, but he certainly kept up the theme of following his heart. So did his sister. <laughs> she and he married, and well, Targaryen incest is not uncommon, but as we just said, they were trying to do away with that. But they couldn't this time because Jaehaerys and Shara just snuck off and hooked up, and it was done. Egg and Betha put considerable effort into trying to forestall this, but clearly it didn't work. Guardians... <laughs> stern talking to... None of it happened. Jaehaerys and Shara got married, and yeah, it was too late. They had to accept it. Now, Daron, of course, is the last child we haven't mentioned here. He was the only one not to marry against her wishes. 
He just didn't marry at all because he was gay. He didn't want to marry a woman. He liked dudes. Darren had been betrothed to Lady Olena, as in the Queen of Thorns. But instead, he went off with Sir Jeremy Norwich, and they died together fittingly during a rebellion as they were defending the realm against this rebellion. So as happy as their courtship and marriage might have been, parenting for Betha and Aegon was far from an easy time. Unfortunately, this didn't exactly end on a happy note either. Instead, it ended with, well, Summerhall, one of the most tragic events in Targaryen history. But we usually think about Summerhall from the Targaryen perspective. Think about the Blackwoods too. Most of that family was extended Blackwood family that died there. Maybe even some actual Blackwoods were there. Maybe they had been invited, you know, as in-laws and such. But if so, it wouldn't, wasn't a good invitation to have accepted. <laughs> the heirs of Summerhall. Alongside Maester Aemon's claim that all his brothers dreamt of dragons, we have evidence of other Targaryens having such dreams across generations. Likewise, the occasional person born of the blood of the first men seems to contain this possibility as well. Different kind of dreams, but still magical dreams, inborn, similar concept, different style. Bloodraven, of course, being a prime example of both, but his Blackwood powers do seem to come from the old gods. And Jojen Reed is an example of someone who has green dreams, but no other powers. So we've got a few examples like that. Now, we have two full episodes devoted to Summerhall, so we won't rehash too much, but we will consider some aspects of the story that maybe we haven't considered before. These magical themes paired together reflect the overarching ice and fire theme with Blackwoods, Old Gods, Werewoods, Green Dreams, and the like. We have ice. With Targaryens, Valyrians, Dragons, Dragon Dreams, etc., we have fire. It's also a recurring theme that the two elements of ice and fire are at eternal war. But it's also true in a literary sense that characters caught between these two worlds of ice and fire are at war with themselves. The human heart in conflict with ice and fire is worth writing about. Prince Duncan was, of course, drawn to Jenny of Oldstones, who brought the Ghost of High Heart to court. Another important green dreamer, the Ghost of High Heart, I think it's fair to say. Her prophecy convinced King Jaehaerys and his sister wife, Queen Shara, that the prince that was promised would be born of their line. And it seems to have been true with Daenerys. But Rhaegar thought it was him, then he thought it was his son. Well, Rhaegar had some ideas. We don't need to get into all that now, but you get the point, the gist of it. Importantly, the both of them are products of Targaryen incest and Blackwood heritage, though. Most recently, no other family has married into the Targaryen line since Egg's mother, and she was a Dane. Was this combination of ice and fire bloodlines a keystone of the prophecy's fulfillment? Certainly the Targaryens had been doing all sorts of wild things based on dreams prior to the marriage of Aegon V and Betha Blackwood, and those were real dreams. But perhaps the dreams took different shape after. There might be a difference. Things seemed to reach a grander scale. Prior to Summerhall, attempts to bring back dragons were more in the embarrassing failure category rather than the tragic doom category. Aegon V, on purpose or not, burned up several Targaryens. His grandson Aerys almost did the same to all of King's Landing before being stopped by Jaime. The key thing to remember here is that Aerys thought it would turn him into a dragon, though. Probably wouldn't have, but he thought it would, and that matters, because Daenerys similarly threw herself on a pyre. It wasn't wildfire, but still, it worked. 
Meanwhile, Rhaegar was on the wrong end of the prophecy and his cousin Robert's hammer. Recall back during the dance when there was talk of a hammer falling on a dragon and a new king rising. Well, Robert Baratheon's great-grandmother was Betha Blackwood. It's piling up here. Kind of seems like recent Blackwood marriages are paired with prophecies, among other magical elements on top of that. It was their children whose line was prophesied to bear the prince that was promised, after all. And again, no other families have married in since. So that bared repeating. Magical DNA combining in unexpected ways. Well, what does that mean? It's certainly possible this is very relevant, very crucial. Dark wings, stark words. Though the connections to House Targaryen are strong, it's the connections to House Stark and the old gods that perhaps matter even more. Here we don't just have blood ties, but a much longer-standing shared heritage in culture and history. And with that, the thematic resonance is much stronger. After that, the glimpses came faster and faster, till Bran was feeling lost and dizzy. He saw no more of his father, nor the girl who looked like Arya, but a woman heavy with child emerged naked and dripping from the black pool, knelt before the tree, and begged the old gods for a son who would avenge her. The woman in the vision is the subject of much curiosity and debate. As has been shown elsewhere, Bran's Weirwood vision seemed to be in reverse chronological order. Among the possibilities for them is Melantha Blackwood. Melantha married Lord Willem Stark after his first wife died in childbirth. So Willem had a son already, named Brandon. This is likely the same Brandon that old Nan came to Winterfell for when she was young Nan. This young Brandon died young, and Willem and Melantha's son Edwile became the heir instead. Later, they also had a girl named Jocelyn. They wouldn't have had a chance to have more since he died fairly young, it seems. Edwile, Ned's grandfather, was likely a boy lord then. If it is her, the question is then, what does she want revenge for? It could be over the death of her husband. He was slain by Raymond Redbeard, but Raymond, king beyond the wall, was slain in turn by Willem's brother, Artos the Implacable, in the same battle. So, not sure who she would take revenge on there. Maybe she's really bloodthirsty and the one death isn't enough. She's like, well, you killed my husband. I want more than just you. I want your family or I want more blood of the free folk. It doesn't have to be specifically William's death too. It could be related to his death in another way. She lost her position as Lady of Winterfell. Perhaps it was an internal struggle. Given our belief that Edwile was a boy lord, this fits pretty well. And it was exactly the problem that Cregan Stark faced. He was a boy lord, and his uncle didn't let go easily. He had to take it by force. It could even be related to the Bracken-Blackwood feud, but that is a stab in the dark. There's no particularly strong answer here. The evidence isn't strong for this woman to be anyone in particular, to be honest. Melantha Blackwood is just one of the more popular theories. I like it, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's a slam dunk or anything. So whether or not it was her, Melantha would have been born in the early 200s, most likely, which is why we think she was very likely a sister to Black Betha. Betha's father is still Lord in 220, and Melantha married not very long before 226, which is when Willem died. And Willem would have surely wanted more children, especially if that Brandon had already passed. So it's not likely Melantha was on the older side. Usually, if you want to have more kids and you're a Lord, you pick a younger wife. And if that's true, she possibly would have been around quite a while as a presence at Winterfell. Even with her husband gone, she still had her children to worry about and manage, and especially if they inherited young. 
her daughter Jocelyn is featured in the histories in an anecdote at least once. Catelyn thinks of her as being the one that married into the Royce family. She doesn't call her by name. We just know of this and can connect the dots. So Jocelyn may have left Winterfell fairly young, as a lot of young ladies do when they go marry outside the kingdom. One can imagine fairly easily then that it was just Edwile and Melantha together, and she was backing him, asserting his rights, helping him be established, helping protect him from the Bernard Starks of the world. Bernard is the one that ruled in Cregan's place when he didn't need it. Now, Rob lamented not marrying Sansa to the Aarons. Perhaps that was why Edwile's sister Jocelyn did marry the Royces at the time, because it could bring outside support. On the other hand, it could be the opposite. Marry your sister forcibly to someone in another region so that house can't come help you. That would be why someone would force that marriage so that Jocelyn's marriage can't help Edwile. Hmm. Intrigue can take many forms if we imagine and play with the possibilities. Regardless if we're anywhere near the mark, Melantha, like Black Alley before her, is a touchstone reminder of the various and longstanding connections between Stark and Blackwood. These connections were certainly on display in A Song of Ice and Fire, as Lord Titos Blackwood, perhaps remembering Black Alley, was an outstanding and loyal leader to King Rob Stark. That's so Raven Tree. At his side stood the Lord Titus Blackwood, a hard pike of a man with close-cropped salt-and-pepper whiskers and a hook nose. His bright yellow armour was inlaid with jet in elaborate vine and leaf patterns, and a cloak sewn from raven feathers draped his thin shoulders. It had been Lord Titus who had led the sortie that plucked her brother from the Lannister camp. Just imagine being a Lannister, facing an army of hundreds of men and looking kind of similar. There's a bunch in Tully colors, a whole lot in drab northern stuff, and then this bright yellow guy looking like a huge lemon sherbet wearing a cloak of feathers. You're not forgetting him too easily. And later he switches it up to scarlet armor, so he's got some, he's got a good wardrobe, let's say. And when Jamie meets him, he's also thinner because he's been under siege. Lack of food during a siege is not unlikely to become a lot more common and soon. This is a prelude to worse. Not only was he the last to surrender, and the only one to wait until after his liege had surrendered first. He distinguished himself in the war on multiple occasions before that. During the Battle of the Camps, it's his sortie from inside Riverrun that leads to the freeing of Edmure, who had been captured early on in the war. It was also Titos who led the survivors to safety in that same battle prior where Edmure had been captured, and they found themselves needing new leaders to step forward. And he did. There may have been more than honor in play here, though. More than an unwillingness to surrender the Brackens. The Riverlands had never been ruled from the north before Rob Stark. To Kaido's Blackwood, this is different than the rest of the Riverlords. It's a chance for his house to rejoin the culture of the north, quite possibly. This was a huge deal to him. Wow. I mean, his house had been separated from the north, from northern culture, for all this for centuries, for eons potentially, because we don't really know how long ago the Blackwoods left the North. So this could have been a big deal, really big deal to reunite that ancient heritage. At least it was unique. I mean, we see Rob and Titos and others praying together. So this idea of a unified kingdom of North and Rivers, don't 
downplay how big of a deal it was to men like Titos in terms of setting up something new and powerful and honorable that reflects the beliefs of his family for time immemorial. As usual, honor isn't cheap. Being the last to surrender means the last to start the recovery process. Titos being off with Rob and the war effort left Raventree largely defenseless. As we mentioned earlier, the Lannisters did attack the Blackwood lands, and while Raventree itself managed to withstand, the farms and villages did not. I struggle to imagine what they can do about this. They can't have a lot of money given the war and siege, and winter is coming. It's that simple and that bleak. Lord Tito speaks of losing two sons, Lucas at the Red Wedding, but also Robert, his youngest, who died during the siege. Through siege-related business, not direct violence, through starvation, through malnutrition. So it's already begun to take its toll. I suppose anyone who died and wasn't buried could rise again. So let's watch out for that. What a sight that would be. Dead Blackwoods rising from beneath their dead tree with hundreds of ravens looking down, screeching endlessly. Yikes. That will be something Titos may have to face. But also, something else to consider. Titos, like many, will see young Griff, Aegon VI, with curiosity. But he'll see him differently. They'll wonder, is it really Rhaegar's son? In a metaphorical sense. Or maybe they'll just accept that. Now, even if the Blackwoods have no idea he's quite likely a Blackfire, which would definitely be a turnoff, but even if they don't know about that, they can't be thrilled about the Golden Company coming to Westeros. That's a bitter steel-founded organization. Lord Titos probably not going to take the side of Young Griff, the Golden Company, and the new Aegon. So that might be a problem if they don't submit when Aegon takes the capital. I could see that being a plot point. But I can see him continuing to behave with honor. So no matter what he does, some people will never be satisfied. Back in Blackwood. Treachery runs in their blood. Before the Andals came to Westeros, House Bracken ruled this river. We were kings, and the Blackwoods were our vassals, but they betrayed us and usurped the crown. Every Blackwood is born a turncloak. With a long look behind us, we can look at House Blackwood as a whole to get an idea of how George R. R. Martin has portrayed them. It's pretty much the opposite of that quote. But what would you expect from a Bracken? Again, it's a reminder of perspective, too. Something we always have to keep in mind. To Jonas Bracken, the man quoted here, that's his reality. To the rest of us, well, for the most part, what we've seen is, like I said, essentially the opposite of the Bracken take here. But your mileage might vary. Standing for honor, helping resolve disputes, stubbornness, loyalty, eloquence. They're seemingly always good. Well, almost always good. In this coverage, Bloodraven himself would probably be the most controversial figure, the one most seen as an evil man. I think most of us know better than to see him as, as evil, but we see him as gray. But evil is how he was seen by many in world, and a few of you probably see him as evil anyway. So it's a variety of takes on Bloodraven. And arguably, he was more of a Targaryen than a Blackwood anyway, given our theory that Melissa died fairly young. We saw that the Bracken schemed at court along with so many others in the time of Aegon IV, not just his lovers, but his court and his council. But again, the Blackwood Melissa was the exception. Standing alone, yet firm in her values, is a recurring theme for the Blackwoods. Getting along with everyone despite those differences, that's also a theme here. And it's suggestive. When we see them on screen in Dance with Dragons, Jonas Bracken is having sex with a woman he claims is a prize of war, bumblingly putting his clothes on backwards and demanding rewards for doing very little. All this after changing sides. 
while Lord Titos, meanwhile, is presented as honest and loyal and upright and dignified and reasonable and tough. Basically, all the traits we saw from his forebears and, say, Ned Stark. <laughs> the decision to associate them with ravens is ironic, as it turns out. Dark wings, dark words? Okay. But that's not a good description for House Blackwood. Their words are trustworthy and positive for now. <laughs> As to Bracken and Blackwood, though they're eternal rivals, it does not seem that George wants us to see them as narrative equals. I mean, just look at how Jonos was presented compared to Titos. And Blackwood is far more popular than Bracken in this fandom. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way it is. And the blood connections are an extension of this. By connecting the Blackwoods in recent generations to the Starks, the house George most intends for us to associate with goodness and honor, that is very suggestive going forward, isn't it? It's almost as if they get to claim the best parts of the North while distancing themselves from its problematic recent past regarding human sacrifice and such. Almost the best of both worlds. Now again, the feud with the Brackens is not a good thing. By no means. An endless cycle of revenge is one of the things George is most speaking out against in this series. Bloodshed has to stop. Someone has to end it. You have to have peace to end violence. And that peace has to hold. But after this long, neither of them can claim the moral high ground. So it's definitely not a feather in the Blackwood's cap. Well, a raven feather, okay. Still, despite that, the Blackwood's come out looking exceptional overall. Notable for worshiping the old gods in the Riverlands, that same steadfastness is shown in current times. In the War of Five Kings, again, they only surrendered after their liege did. They're the only one to do that. And likewise, they've never surrendered when it comes to their beliefs. All the other river lords, minus the Brackens, are going to have to respect them for that, for being the last to surrender. They don't have to respect the old gods' worship, but for lasting longer than even River Run did, that's a point in their favor, if not several points. Tito set a high standard there, or perhaps it's better to say he maintained the Blackwood high standard. Now, having the respect of your peers is one thing, Judging people by their friends is a reasonable way to go about things, in my opinion. And so is the opposite. Judging someone by their enemies, I mean. We've been over some of the houses that the Blackwoods are associated with. Other honorable houses, connections, friendships, alliances. But they've been explicitly rejected by one of the most despicable houses in the Riverlands, the Freys. And at the same time that the Freys are rejecting the Starks. Lucas was murdered at the Red Wedding. Walder Frey's fourth wife was a Blackwood, but kinship counts for no more than guest right at the Twins. I should like to bury Lucas beneath the tree, but the Freys have not yet seen fit to return his bones to me. Lucas was the one of the men who escorted Catelyn South to treat with Renly and Stannis. And Lord Titos is putting it mildly. Lucas was Walder's relative by marriage, but Lame Lothar orchestrated the Red Wedding, and Lame Lothar was the first child of Alyssa Blackwood and Lord Walder. So he's even more closely related to Lucas than Walder Frey. Arguably, it's worse in terms of kinslaying. I don't really know how the old gods judge these things, but they might have something awful in mind for Lame Lothar. Now, Lothar could be seen as a parallel to Bloodraven, aside from their heritage, Recall that Bloodraven invited Aenys Blackfire to make his case for the throne, then had him executed. So same sort of false pretenses as the Red Wedding, though with far less death. Still, it was seen as a violation of guest right, or at least dishonorable. It is, after all, what got Bloodraven sent to the wall. And it was specifically Sir Hostine Frey that slew Lucas. 
Sir Hostine, a.k.a. Sir Stupid, he who was leading the phrase towards the Battle of Ice and perhaps a frozen death. Ice coming back for you there. Hmm. Speaking of up north, another Frey gets mentioned here. Big Walder Frey is Lame Lothar's nephew, so they are both on the Blackwood branch of the Freys. Big Walder shows his Blackwood heritage on his personal coat of arms, and he's our choice for the murder of his own cousin, Little Walder. Hmm. When Titos is talking to Jamie about the death of Lucas, he mentions wanting to bury him beneath the great weirwood tree, which Jamie promises to help make happen, in fairness. Lord Titos will tell Jamie that he has forebears buried at a disputed locale called Cairns. So perhaps lesser Blackwoods are buried there, or the practice of burying beneath the tree is new? Or perhaps he just said this. He disclaims there's ancestors there because he's negotiating with Jamie over what land to give up. (laughs) Volumes and volumes have been written about the importance of the Crypts of Winterfell. Hey, we did an episode on it as well as countless theories on the true nature of werewoods. But it's noteworthy to see the difference in custom here. Crypts versus tree burials. Other houses who worship the old gods, what do they do? We don't have other examples. Maybe long ago, burial customs were something people really disputed. Maybe it was a cultural separation. Maybe that's one of the things that the Starks and Blackwoods of thousands of years ago fought over. Or perhaps it's that the two ideas are linked, that the burial beneath the ground is just another clue to northern connections we've been mentioning. It certainly fits thematically. The Blackwoods are the last to give up on the Starks. Titos made good friends with Rob. Black Alley married Cregan Stark. It's a prevalent theme, no doubt. We've been over so many angles on it by now. Some have proposed that a werewood will drink the blood of the dead and that this links into the power somehow. Meh, maybe. The trees already have more than a few connections to blood, so it's definitely not just out there as an idea. There's Bran and his Jojen pace, the visions of executions, the blood-looking sap that drips from their eyes. Hmm. There's a whole school of thought about whether the sacrifice is what powers green seers and the powers that Bran and others exhibit in the first place. So may well be that the Blackwoods have kept this tradition up somewhat accidentally or maybe not understanding where it originated from. Supposedly, human sacrifice to the werewoods only ended 500-ish years ago in the north. Did it end at Raven Tree then or before? Or maybe it ended when the, the tree itself ended. When the tree died, maybe they stopped sacrificing to it. Either way, it's fascinating. Is the dead tree a monument to a bygone era or an active part of the network now still? If the others control dead bodies, can they also control dead trees or see through them or something? I mean, it's connected to them, not just thematically, but historically. If the children created the others and the children have these ties to nature, then the others have some of that as well imbued within them. Either way, the ravens still come to the tree even after it's dead. That's why there seems to be some sort of spark of mysticism or life within it. I don't think these ravens are just coming here out of habit, are they? I mean, these can't be the same ravens. Ravens, you know, they don't have, their lifespans aren't that long. The blood ties are also rather overwhelming when we look at how well they cover all the recent history of Targaryen and Stark. We've been through that, but it bears repeating here as we wrap up. So many connections, Stark, Baratheon, Targaryen. You can't come up with three families that add up to bigger than that. Lannister, Tully, Martell, uh, throw in a couple more houses and you still haven't risen to that level. It's pretty cool. Now, the archery theme perhaps matters too. 
it might still come up. It might be relevant to the story along with the tree. Maybe the two together. Another idea. When the, go back to the time of Aegon the Conqueror when he first appeared on the shores of Westeros. Torrin Stark, he of kneeling fame, was actually at first planning to fight. He took his army south, and one of the men who persuaded him to give it a shot, literally, was a dude named Brandon Snow, who said he would kill the dragons under cover of darkness. Yet again, we come back to Bran's werewood visions, this time the one with a young man sitting in the Winterfell godswood trying to carve arrows from the werewood tree. This is most popularly believed to be this very same Brandon Snow. I believe it, and I don't know who else it could be. I don't think it could be Bloodraven because the timeline doesn't fit, and why would Bloodraven be making arrows at Winterfell? Either way, this Brandon Snow never got his chance. But maybe the point of this anecdote in the world of Ice and Fire was to suggest this concept, to raise the idea of werewood arrows as a weapon of note. After all, that vision that Bran sees is probably telling us something. And the only thing really happening, since the identity of the character is unrevealed, is the werewood arrows. That seems to be the important part of that scene. Daenerys has dragons, and there's going to be plenty of people who want them killed. Perhaps we'll see werewood arrows fired at them. I mentioned this possibility way back with Red Rob, and maybe having, if he hadn't been killed first, potentially shooting it, Hard Hugh Hammer, or Ulf the White, or even Tessarian. So that's where the dragons will likely come first, meaning to various areas that no one's got defenses for. And arrows will be perhaps the only one thing they can do to even have a hope. Dragons, maybe they'll show up at Raven Tree Hall or maybe the North. Who knows where the dragons are going to go throughout the rest of the story. But if anyone's going to be taking shots at dragons or dragon riders, definitely got to nominate Raven Tree Hall the people from it, the characters associated with it as possibilities. Or maybe the tree itself, the ancient raven tree tree, is a source of these arrows. But that's curious, right? Because the tree is so old. Maybe the arrows wouldn't be good from this tree because it's turning to stone. Maybe they're too... But maybe that's exactly what makes them special. What of the Bracken-Blackwood feud then? Is that going to matter going forward? Will it become just increasingly ridiculous in the face of an overwhelming common enemy and the others? Is it a touchstone for human feuding during a time when everyone should come together? Is it a central example of the failures of humanity failing to unite against a common threat? Or maybe the feud becomes irrelevant because of the common threat. Maybe one of them is just wiped out. Jamie does suggest that's what it might take. One wiping out the other forever. Maybe a dragon does that. Just torches one of the castles and slays everyone inside and that's it for one of the two families. Maybe both. Huh. Maybe Hoster Blackwood and Jonas's daughter, who's also a hostage, maybe they fall in love. That's a theory from Nina I like. Maybe they blow up in King's Landing after falling in love. <laughs> Whoops, like, a, like Valyria. <laughs> like the doom of Valyria. Maybe Lord Titus helps Brendan Blackfish fight back against the Lannisters. He gave a hostage to Jamie, but he didn't swear in front of the heart tree. If Jamie really wanted to make sure Titus stuck to his oath, that's what he should have done. We have yet to even meet Titus's heir, whose name is very specifically and interestingly Brendan Blackwood. Somehow that name didn't come up 
throughout Titos and Jamie's conversations. It's a provocative name, Brendan Blackwood. So there's potential for him in the story, perhaps, too. Maybe Titos dies and this guy takes the stage. A lot of possibilities, folks. Whether it's through the death of dragons or others or any of these other ideas, we're expecting the Blackwoods to have some sort of role to play in the coming story. Perhaps it's a big role. Or perhaps it's not a matter of being part of the coming story directly, but their involvement in the history being revealed further and more relevantly and more interestingly. The Long Night's certainly going to give them and us and everyone else some new perspective to consider, at the very least. Winter has already come to the Riverlands, and as we said, Blackwood Vale had no time to recover from war and siege. Perhaps they'll have to flee, but it doesn't really seem like the kind of thing they do, given their stubbornness. So they may perish in the midst of the new long night. Currently, we have Titus in the Riverlands, Hoster heading towards King's Landing or the Brotherhood Without Banners, if something happens in the meantime, and Brendan Rivers in a cave teaching Brand's unimaginable skills. Undoubtedly, they will have some kind of significance yet to see, if not more Blackwoods, and probably some Brackens too. Few families have had such involvement with the crown throughout history. Few families have had such an interesting backstory, and few families have such mystical mysteries yet to be unraveled. And no family has all of that put together. The Blackwoods are one of the biggest players in the history of Westeros, and that's just what we know now. No doubt when these clues, when more clues, more story is given to us, more history is given to us, no doubt we'll be admiring them even more. A huge thanks to Mikhail Schick for the quote work. She is at Ink as Rain on Twitter. You can also find her at the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast, as well as the Podcast of Surprise, a podcast on The Witcher that I'm a part of with her and Kyle Foster. The section headers were read by Zach Louie of Game of Owns podcast, another show you should check out. Co-writer for this episode was Joe Buckley, he of the Isle of Faces pod. Additional writing help, theories, and fact-checking came from Rainey's Targaryen of Westeros.org and Nina Friel, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. Michael Klarfeld is, of course, responsible for our video intro and the maps you see behind me. You can find his work at claradox.de. And hey, maybe one day you'll appear in one of his maps. Join the Facebook groups, our Facebook group, History of Westeros, to find out more about how to sign up for that. Thanks to Ashea. She's responsible for the majority of production, a lot of the recording, the video and audio editing, and so much more. Our audio engineering is by Benjineer. The podcast editing is by me. And I also want to give a shout out to our friend, Sean of House Beard. Hasn't been on the show in a while since he's moved to Colorado, but he will be back. In fact, we'll be covering Dunkin' Egg with him in the near future. Also, I want to shout out his new channel. He is currently covering The Boys, on YouTube, it's at Dancing Sean. On Twitter, that's also the name of his YouTube channel. He is doing some film reviews. And like I said, he started with the boys and will be analyzing and discussing other interesting shows in the future. And we look forward to him returning to History of Westeros podcast, not just for Dunkin' Egg material, but for House of the Dragon, most likely in 2022. And that's it, folks. I also want to give a shout out to our patrons. We remember Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, rider of Mazalacartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire is Warden of the West. 
Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister the Blood Lion is Ruler of Castle Everor, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by the flagship Prince Daemon. Lord Tuttle has been very quiet about his attempts to build ships from petrified werewoods. We don't know whether it's been a great success or things have sunken a bit. Jenny the Just is captain of the ghost ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade Red Frost. He tips his cup up and toasts to House Blackwood. Much respect. White Walker patron Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints was captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of Milkwater, Blue Eyes, and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the first men now crowned in ice, called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, is wielder of the ice-forged greatsword, Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, Master of Coin, and Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whisperers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood, Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwearwood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Dillsdale is the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Mistress of the Dornish Marches. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stonesharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woodswitch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. The Queen's High Council has Rabea Star-Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat, In the Shadows We Bear Our Claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are quartz crystal, wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire and ink. Lady Tracy the Ascendant, ruler of the Cloud Keep, master of laws. The purple Lord Leo Anansi, master of whisperers. Our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, wielding the Valyrian sword Onyx Abyss. He's backed by Serdine the White, Knight of the Black Star. Gregor Snow called Snowbear, O Bastard of Winterfell. Vaughn of House Furster. Their sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field. Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark, gunslinger knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. Well, thanks. The Queen's Guard has... Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon. First Blood, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin, Nora Nico, and Archmaester Vena, 
whose ring, rod, and mask are made of steel, not pudding. Our beard guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, and Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red and brown. Stay frosty. And last but not least, the members of the History of Westeros Night's Watch. Lord Commander Richard the Ligerheart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver valyrian steel spikes. His motto is Go Blue. Backed by first builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow, first ranger Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname, and first steward Sir Jurian of the Torrentine, called Palewind. We hope we didn't miss your shout-out. If we did, please let us know, and we'll make sure it gets included going forward. Patreon is the most popular way to support History of Westeros. Go to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros to learn more. Or if you prefer, go to historyofwesteros.com, and there's lots of other ways to support the show apart from Patreon. And that does it for this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, Valar Reredus.